Welcome back to Defocus. I'm your host, Quaid Wooten, and I have my partner co-host extraordinaire in the dirty, grimy world of cinema podcasting. That's right. It's Nicholas Galligan. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. It's still the same night, though. It is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, we ended the last episode on the 11th film, uh, the best of the 2010s, and we're about to do the top 10 now. So, yeah. Uh, so, again... Uh, just recapping, spoiler warning, if you, uh, you know, haven't watched any of these films, uh, you know, just skip over it or, you know, watch Be it. Be prepared. Back. Yeah. Do whatever. <laughs> um, you can, yeah. of course, click on our lists below in the show notes, the description, and sort of scan through just to make sure, you know. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, we've been doing okay at not really spoiling a lot of the movies here. Like a That's couple true. of them, we spoiled a couple things, but, you know. uh no, no, we've been relatively good about that. I agree. Unlike most times. But, you know. <laughs> well, when we do. <laughs> we are just that. skating the surface this time, so. Um, All right. Well, um, last time uh, we left off at uh, Police 10, and it was your turn. So you want to yeah, kick it off? So top 10 of the 2010s. So top 10 of the decade for both of us. Yeah. Um, this actually, like you said earlier, this was easier. Um, this is definitely easier than doing the bottom ones. I completely agree. Yeah. You um, know what your favorites are and you know your absolute Yeah, favorites. exactly. All right. So I guess I'll start again. Um, yeah. My number 10 film um, was another David Fincher film, 2011, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Mm. I do not have this one, so yeah, I, it was definitely in contention. All his films were in contention, but yeah, only I one got on there. Love this one, and I think personally, I think this was his best movie of the decade. Yeah, um, it's an interesting um, film. Yeah, well, and it's I, I think like it's weird because a lot of people, a lot, I think it's a popular thing to say that the uh, what was it the Swedish version, Swiss version. Sure. I can't remember. Uh, Swedish. Sorry, what? It's Swedish. Yeah. Swedish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, is better. You know. And I would disagree with that massively. You know, I would say this, yeah, the only this, bad this, thing about the American version is, is there's one film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, <laughs> as one film, though, it works so well. Yeah. You know, and. You know, I've always loved the treatment of serial killers with um, that David Fincher has, you know, and I think that like um, this in particular um, here, hold on. So uh, in the Zodiac uh, 2007, uh, one of my favorite scenes in that film is um, the part where he goes and like finds that. I think it was like a guy who ran the theater or something. And he goes down into the basement to get yeah. like old films and, and he, like oh, it's out. this, yeah, it's this like crazy moment of like paranoia and, you know, or you don't really know what's real and what's not. And, you know, you, you're just like very sure he's going to die right there. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so and, is John Hall's character. Yeah. And, and in this film, I felt like he, he got to play with that moment more, you know, and he got to make that moment real um, at the end here. Um, but 
I loved this whole kind of like isolated feeling of being on this island, you know, and um, as far as the story goes, it was, you know, it's a, I haven't read the book, but, you know, it's an excellent story. Uh, yeah, it's very but, compelling. Um, I think David, David Fincher's treatment of it, um, this this really, to me, felt like the best of both worlds coming from like if you took seven and zodiac and decided that they were going to have a glorious baby with david fincher sure you know <laughs> like this feels like that film and despite it being um you know a uh remake uh i, th- I think david fincher is a master and like this film is exciting and captivating all the way through you know and shows a lot about uh just people in general and how fuck they can be. Yeah. I mean like all um, the Fincher's films, it's just so rewatchable, you know, oh, I've yeah. probably already seen it at least three or four times. So, yeah. And one of the things that I love about this one is that it feels, it, it feels very, um, like I said, like I was talking about contained, but, um, he really does a really good job in, um, in selling that in the style as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I really felt like this this whole story kind of just happens in this very contained part of the world and it's almost like no one ever will know that it happened. Sure. You know. Um and it's just I, I don't really know how to describe it but you know I I love that so much. And I think a lot of my top 10 are going to be like that where there's just uh elements of these films that I just you know absolutely adore. But uh yeah no so i i think this one is uh i don't know david David fincher just blew it out of the water with this one i love it i mean if you wouldn't mind i have a a thing to say about it yeah no go for it um i think this film's incredibly interesting because it has a um unique political message essentially or not even a message but um political analysis when you think about the author the author was a journalist whose main topic of, um, I guess what they call their beat, um, was uh, essentially fascist uh, and neo-Nazi groups in uh, the Nordic nations. So I think Sweden in particular. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he wrote these books as you know fiction, but essentially exemplifying, I guess, some of the stories and ideas he had in his head surrounding these themes. Mm-hmm. Um, because he did uh, portray the... Antifa, the anti- anti-fascist groups in a positive light in his journalism. And the main actress in this movie is um, essentially an embodiment of the sort of the idea of uh, Antifa as a hero. Um, sure. And so you're, you're dealing with an anarchist that is rebelling against state authority, um, what's illustrated as sort of patriarchy or masculinity, um, and fascists, directly fascists, you know, and this one being that there's this Nazi influence on the family that they were collaborators in world war two. Yeah. Um, you know, she deals with the, the state worker that, um, you know, sort of keeps her contained and depressed, um, uses her mental health against her to bend her to his will and ends up raping her. And then of course she extracts vengeance on him. So that's both the anarchist and the the patriarchy aspect. And of course, then you're dealing with the investigation of these, these neo-Nazis, these, you know, the, the exact opposite of Antifa. And, 
and I just I really liked those just seeing that as a movie and it surprised me that I would watch a movie like this you know and and love it <laughs> you know I like yeah. uh, it's it's pretty crazy because it's really controversial you know I think a lot of people would look at both sides of the, the spectrum you know and sort right. of discard both sides but it is interesting to see from one side you know if you could exemplify them as heroes and how you would do it um, yeah and so yeah it's very interesting also I just I, I just love the kind of this interweaved tragic love story that's in this one yeah um, yeah that's it's totally not something you would expect and it's almost like not this. even tragic though it's like he discards at, her at in the, a sense yeah well that's why it's tragic right at the end well yeah it's tragic <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but uh no i was i was definitely i mean i think even the camera was like fr- from her perspective at the end um yeah. But, uh, you know, after she did so much to help him. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, it's. Which I think yeah. is even more in adding on onto the Antifa idea and all the things surrounding it is, you know. Sure. That no matter what she does, these guys are just going to abandon her. Right. Um, by the way, so I'm just on the uh, the letterbox page for this. And I love ab- above the log line or like the summary of the film. It says evil shall with evil be expelled. Oh, okay. And I'm nice. like, that is so perfect <laughs> for this film. Um, but no, it's, it's just you. I, I don't think there's any watch of this film that I haven't felt just dirty after watching it. Not, not like, not, I know. you know, but the rape just, scene just is, like, is horrific, but it's not even that, you know, like, of course it's that, but like beyond that too, just, everything about this film mm-hmm. you know like i i can't believe you come out at the end being like wow the good guys won <laughs> you know like but there's so much about this film that's like depraved and you know it's just like i i think that I, i'm glad that films like this exist because i feel like you know so many people would want to censor something like this yeah, no, it's uh, um, it's a testament to David Fincher and uh, his uh, continuing ability to deal with controversial subjects. Yeah, to great success. Yeah, no, so that takes the number ten spot on my list. I think it's an amazing film. Yeah, I mean, one quick note again is yeah. Fight Club is sort of the antithesis of this film, which is sort of interesting. Sure. You know, yeah. I said like, you know, there's the two extremes, and Fight Club in many ways is the other extreme. Um, but yeah. yeah, we well probably absolutely do a fight club episode in the future so yeah definitely so what was um, your number 10 there uh, my number 10 i believe was your number 25 which is the fantastic film a quiet place by yes. um john krasinski in the year of 2018 the year of our lord 2018 <laughs> um <laughs> um i guess i'll go first since i have it higher sure but um once again, it's a recurring theme on here. How many times have I talked about family? A lot. A lot of these films have to deal with families that I'm picking uh, for my top yeah. 25. And it's an incredibly simple message, but done so beautifully and yep. with a great emotional climax of just you will sacrifice yourself for your family, everything for family. And mm-hmm. I just cried. I cried the first time and it's so rewatchable. It's so yeah, enjoyable. Because I don't know how you still get tense on the second and the third watch, but you do. Like the, it's not just, it's not jump scares, you know. Well, the There's sound some design of is masterful, you know. Like mm-hmm. a, a lot of people consider that it's very quiet, you know, but that's actually not really 
um, what's going on. You know, there, there is obviously a lot of quiet in this film, mm-hmm. right? But it's almost like a, uh, it's almost like using a macro lens, you know, where like they, they hyper focus on specific sounds, you know? Absolutely. And it just creates, you know, this like tension and it's, it's, it's really well done. And I, I don't know if there is like a documentary about the sound or like any sort of like behind the scenes thing about the sound I in think this there and is. the DVD uh, edition or whatever, but I would really like to see if there is, you know, cause that would be a really awesome thing to watch. It's an ingenious idea. You know, yeah. imagine sitting down, you have one of the like, perfect high concept ideas that you're like, what are you saying? It's a horror movie. But yeah. it's, you know, the, the monsters can hear things from miles away. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. So well, good. It, it is, it is a great, just, um, genre film idea, you know? And also, go ahead. I, I think an exemplifier of that is that it was immediately copied like 15 times. Oh, yeah. You know, um, <laughs> so many people trying to like, rip off of it from i um, think it's going to spawn a subgenre frankly really yeah films that have to deal with some sort of uh um you know sensory deprivation aspect, like horror yeah horror right. as the as the five senses or it's five senses, right, right right i didn't come across as an idiot <laughs> uh <laughs> but yeah i think that might i think it might be a spawned a subgenre in many ways that would be interesting um i'm so excited one of my big disappointments with covid was not being able to see this movie because COVID happened like two weeks before the second movie oh, was coming yes. out. Yeah. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. Another thing I'd point out is Emily Blunt is fantastic. Oh, she yeah. is so fucking good as an actress. One of the top ones currently. Um, and I would just say John Krasinski is great too, man. You know, yeah. he's great. Just the talent to do this. I think this is his second film. And, uh, it, it blows me away and he's great in it. The kids are great. I think, you know, a yeah. lot of people poo poo kids acting. I don't poo poo it as much as a lot of people like to. Um, but they definitely have a leg up in the sense that they don't have to talk, you know? <laughs> so it makes it even yeah. better. Um, I mean, here's the thing. As far as kids acting goes, I think that kid actors, here's my hot take on it. I think that kid actors are actually usually better than adult actors. I agree. But um, there's people I talk to that just constantly, any kid in a movie, they shit on. Do you know what it is? People what? are shit at writing for children. Oh, okay. like absolute trash. I cannot tell you the that amount of sense. times I'm watching a kid on TV and I'm like an adult wrote this, <laughs> right? Obviously. And obviously they can't deliver this line because they don't understand it. <laughs> right. Um, if yeah, you that gave makes, them uh, yeah, immediate gave, intuitive sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if you give, if you have a director or a writer, you know, that can play really well to the kid, right? Um, you get excellent performances, like awesome performances every time because you know what? Kids don't have their ego blown out of proportion yet. Yeah. You know, and that's especially in acting your greatest enemy. Um, but yeah, no, sorry. That's, that's, it's always, uh, actually my editor always says this too, where she's like, kids are better than adults for the most part. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think kids can give you the most honest performances you've ever seen. Um, you know, well, I mean, it's a combination of like the lack of ego and the rampant imagination, right? 
Sure. Um, but like, um, it, as long as you give them something that they can hold on to as a kid, you know, like give them lines and give them um, direction that they can understand as a child, you know, they'll do great. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I sort of have a theory on actors is that there is such a thing I, I believe as inborn talent in any field, but I sure. also do strongly believe in a person's ability to work to get to wherever they are. Definitely. Um, and one thing I would say is I think acting as a talent is overvalued out of all the talents because I actually think far more people are capable of it than people would like to believe. I mean, we do it um, all the time, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so I completely agree with you. The idea, you know, you have a, a child actor, it's almost like Plato, you know, so it is sort of up to you in many ways. Yeah. Um, um, I would say one, one last thing about this film for me, at least is uh, it's incredibly lean, not a wasted moment. Yes. Um, um, it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, no, a quiet place is just an awesome film. I've seen it like three times. Yeah. Um, also one of the best trailers of uh, 2018. Oh yeah, for sure. But, uh, Oh man, sorry. Just a quick little side note. We should totally sure. do a best trailers episode. But anyways, I was thinking to... at some point we could do like a, a live stream of that. And we sure, sure. That would yeah. be fun. Yeah. Um, but anyways, um, yeah, no, a quiet place is it's just so excellent. Like we, we covered the sound design and stuff, but you know, just kind of having, like you said, the simple insight about family and sacrifice and um, what it what it truly means to care for your children. Yeah. You know, and I don't know. It, it was, it was, it was awesome. Um, and I, I think, um, I, I think I've said this before too, but any, for me, the marker of a good science fiction or fantasy or just any genre film, like, like a, the marker of a masterpiece in one of those is that it didn't have to be one. Sure. Right. Um, that they used the fact that it was a genre film to condense their story, right? Because this could have easily been a like multi-season drama about family, right? But they, yeah. but I would argue that they and they got it to the point where they were able to, in like an hour and a half, completely blow all of those multi-season family dramas out of the water, you know with their take on it, which was um, condensed by the fact that it was um, horror film. Yeah. You know, um, best. It's the best use of genre in my opinion. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a great movie. It's very much a lesson, you know, it's uh, all these films on here, but this one, especially, you know, because we've talked about, you know, it might be a good idea if you're starting out to make your first film as a horror movie or one of your first films. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is an example of that, frankly. His second film, what was it? It had like a budget of like 16 million or something. It made yep. like an insane amount. Fuck me. <laughs> so, yeah, very cool. Crazy. But, uh, um, anyways, you want to do cool. your number nine? Yeah. Uh, so my number nine is my highest ranked Christopher Nolan film oh. on my list, which is 2014's Interstellar. Awesome. And I had that ranked at number 15. So now we yeah. can talk about it. Yeah. So this film is crazy uh as a uh armchair connoisseur of you know uh physics <laughs> <laughs> i love this movie so much uh and i i think 
it, it was so funny watching people's immediate reaction to this saying that it's so unrealistic you know that like the science doesn't make sense at all when like literally all of it does down to the smallest detail sure you know up until the very end when he goes through the black hole but like that's all theory anyways so that's where the science fiction kind of got to pop in there and you know the future humans that made like a way that he could survive it and understand it you know Mm -hmm. but um but that's the only that's really the only like sci-fi part of this the rest of it is just science right um like it is a fictional science movie i would say that it's not really a science fiction movie up until the black hole part right um you know, I, I mean, it is science fiction, but it's it's all so accurate, you know, that it's it's hard to call it science fiction in the traditional sense. Yeah, it's you know? the, the best representation of what we have uh, um, achieved in our knowledge of science to, you know, so far. Right, right. Um, but like, I never thought I was going to see a film that used like r- relativity to elicit such extreme emotions out of humans. Yeah. You know. And that scene where they, you know, come back from the uh, that one planet, which, by the way, I want to point out. Was uh, was had such an extreme variation in time because it was closer to a black hole, not because the planet was so massive. Oh, okay, Yeah. Um, Which is why the waves were so big was because it was actually being pulled by the black hole. Um. as the planet rotated, which sure. they people have also been like, oh, why why can that landing craft take off from a planet by itself? And it's because they're like, if you watch it, they're actually moving along the uh, the giant wave, right? So they're using the pull of the black hole to escape the atmosphere with their landing craft, you know. Mm-hmm. And and it's like it, it it's like all the details down to like that extent are thought through. This you know, this film, uh, Interstellar, is for you what Tree of Life is to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> the science versus religion, right? No, yeah, I'm just kidding, <laughs> religion and philosophy um, and science and physics. Yeah, no, I mean, but like, sort sort of though, right? Where like, I, I do believe that like, science is our is our way forward and our way of discovering um, the mysteries yeah. of the universe. And this this did have this very like romantic view of science. Yeah, you know. I mean, I wanted to say something about the the romance in this film. One of the reasons I love this film is at the very end, and people also shed on it for this reason, is um, it was like, you know, when he goes into the black hole and he's sort of communicating through the dust on the bookshelf and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, you know, it's essentially it's boiling down to some sense of like love conquers, you know. Um, and yeah. I just really like that. I really liked the 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 sort of romantic impulse at the heart of this film of what he's doing for his children, you know, and like, right, uh, right. It's, it's similar to, you know, how the trailer was that fantastic trailer of like what we used to be, you know, and the, oh, the, yeah. the spaceship, it's this longing. It's about, you know, the human spirit overcoming, you know, and doing whatever it takes. Speaking of trailers, um, Nolan's trailers are always amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Based on uh, going back to kind of what you were saying about, um, the whole like love conquers message. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I felt like, I felt like that wasn't completely the message because I think a lot of people latched onto that because of Anne Hathaway's, 
um, speech with, which I think was kind of getting at what the film was about, right? Like it was, it was approaching it, but I think it was talk. It was more about like our, our humanity that is going to guide us through this. Sure. Um, And at the end of the film, you know, the future humans create a tesseract, which is like what he is able to go into in the black hole and they make it something that he can understand, you know, and he uses his own humanity, which for him is love, right. To navigate this like advanced machine that is like so beyond him that it basically seems like magic. Yeah. You know, and um, no, I think, I think that's, I, I think it's interesting that like, basically for him to um reach back he has to follow this through line that's within him you know and that was it it felt almost a little bit mind-bending you know and when you really when you really understood what was going on and i think that was i think that was actually the big problem with this film is that it didn't hold your hand at all Right. Sure. There was no one explaining why these things worked. They just worked. Right. And which I think most people enjoyed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, but like, um, a lot of, uh, like older people didn't really like this movie. And I think the reason is because (laughs) so beyond them. (laughs) What? It's just beyond their conception of, uh, certain things, but they weren't taught relativity in school. Sure. Right. And like, that's not a part of their world. And I think that like when you when you listen like when you listen to honest trailers talk about this film, like it was clear that they didn't understand the science and that like created a rift for them, you know, where they couldn't they couldn't appreciate the movie um, for its emotional parts. So the emotional parts seemed like unearned and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I think that was I, I personally don't think that's a flaw with the film. Um, I think it's definitely a choice. Um, I appreciate that choice because I I definitely am of the mindset that you should make your film. So um, like I would rather have some people love my films than everyone just like them. Sure. You know, and when you have just some people that love your film, you're also going to have plenty of people that hate your film. Yeah. You know, and I think that's what happened here where like there were a lot of people that like more than just didn't like this movie. There were a lot of people that hated this movie. There were naysayers. Oh, I saw this projected on cellular way to IMAX. Um, it was fantastic. And I went with a bunch of film school people with a close friend. And as soon as the movie ended, a lot of the film school people got up and they started immediately talking about like, I didn't like this part. I didn't like that part. And me and my friend just looked at each other. And they're like, you want to just get the fuck out of here and not have to listen to this bullshit and go sit in the <laughs> car and talk about how amazing this movie was? Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, so, yeah. And it's this weird. is like, this was, it, it baffles me to this day how Gravity won Best Picture and this didn't. Yeah. You know? I mean, no one's deserved that award so many times. What? It's crazy. Oh, no yeah. one's deserved that award. A For lot. sure. For sure. Um, but yeah, no, th- this film is. Um, in my opinion, Nolan's masterpiece. And I think, I think a lot of people would disagree with me. I would disagree with it being his masterpiece, but I did put it very high. Yeah. I put it as 15. I think it's an amazing movie. So. I mean, it's, it's hard because he's a master director. So, um, yeah. I think, uh, the, uh, we're talking about the 2010s, but the 2000s were definitely the decade of Nolan. So, 
Yeah, definitely. Um, no, but uh, when I when I saw that interview where uh, Tarantino was like Dunkirk is what made uh, what what did he say? He was like he like welcomed Christopher Nolan to the big boys now because of Dunkirk, and I'm like, are you <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> like. No one gets to welcome you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but like I, I would, I would say that every single one of Nolan's movies, um, oh, at least almost every single one, has blown every Tarantino movie out of the water. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, there's only, I think there's probably only one Nolan movie, his first one that he made on his own, that I would not even say is like a ten out of ten. You know, even include yeah. Memento and Insomnia. You know, ten out of ten for both of them, frankly. Yeah. So no, he's, he's a brilliant director and like his, his insights are profound. You know, he really understands human emotion. Yeah, there are people and, that like to be contrarian about Nolan. That is definitely a theme I've picked up where there are people that poo poo people that like Nolan and you're just like, what the fuck? Nolan's fantastic. So, yeah. Well, I, I think it's, you know, maybe, maybe it's that he's like a representation of the big blockbuster to them. Sure. But he's um, the best, you know, him and like Villeneuve are the best representation of that. Right. So why poo poo it? I don't, I don't know. It, it's jealousy, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, but but uh, I would like to say a couple things about Interstellar as well. Yeah. Um, the um, fuck, what's his name? Uh, Bourne. Um, Jason Bourne. What's his name? Matt Damon. <laughs> Matt Damon's character in yeah. that moment. I love that little storyline of uh, Matt Damon. Um, you can make a movie about that. And in many ways they did. It's the Martian, but like the Martian's the good version of that. You know, yeah, I mean? yeah. <laughs> like uh, I like, I want to watch the movie of Matt Damon. And that's the great thing. I like stories that invoke other stories where yeah. you come across this character and it invokes a movie in and of itself that is communicated, you know? Sure. Uh, and just him trying to save his life and doing whatever it takes to save his life because he's not going to die and he's not going to sacrifice himself yeah. for humanity. What an and awesome also, person, though. I know. <laughs> I, <feel> like, <laughs> I love that it, really but... uh, cool idea of Nolan's that sort of uh, thrown in at the the end of this idea of well, humanity's continued, but you know what um, Matthew and um, Anne Hathaway's characters are considering is maybe we need to create a new kind of humanity, you know, and they go off with those, you know, that's interesting thought. It's a, it's cool thing to put in such a spectacular movie. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Anyways, enough about interstellar before we make the rest of the episode (laughs) about it. Um, Sure. My number nine then, huh? Yeah. Go for it. I think you'll probably have this. Um, My number nine is by none other than the man, the legend, the myth, Denny Villeneuve. It is Sicario in the year of 2015. Mine is higher. Okay. So we will talk about that then. Yeah. So my number eight is Sicario. So we get to talk about it right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. Uh, Yeah. So anyways, um, yeah, no, Denny Villeneuve, man, Sicario, the land of wolves. That's not what it means. Sicario means hitman, but that's what the movie's about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so, uh, anyway, this, uh, anyways. The gray? this is the gray with Liam Neeson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, <laughs> sorry, that was such so a I bad had joke. A, I had to attempt it. I had to attempt it. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyways, um, yeah. No, this this film is about. Juarez and 
kind of this this uh what like cia operation uh yeah. where they kind of bring in this fbi agent as i think a, it's dhs isn't it department of homeland security uh oh it might be like a joint task force or something but yeah um (laughs) yeah they like they like bring an fbi agent along basically for the sole purpose of having her sign off that uh you know they did everything legally when they did not absolutely do anything legally sure you know um and it's it's a it's a look into kind of like I honestly think this is a movie that everyone should see today because I think that people have a tendency to be in like idealism bubbles, you know, where, where they refuse to acknowledge the real world. And, uh, and essentially this is a reality check movie. (laughs) Sorry. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and they kind of like refuse to acknowledge the real world, but at the same time, they, uh, they almost like dare to have, some sort of idealism about it with no understanding. And it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting film. Um, it's, that's what gives idealism a bad name. Sorry. What I said, that sort of behavior is what gives uh, idealism a bad name. Right. Exactly. Um, and this film, I would argue has a, uh, main character shift, um, towards the end of it. Um, to Benicio del Toro. Yeah, so uh, we've talked about perspective before, and uh, I would say that this film is actually a close third. Um, oh, interesting. Where we fall, but it, it's weird because it's close third, and then we have like we literally change characters at the end, right? Um, and it's we we basically follow Emily Blunt's character throughout the entire film, right? And then. Um, with with like mild breaks where we get to see a uh, maybe it is far third but I, I think I, I get know. what it, you're saying yeah it where, is interesting where it's like repeat. very very consistently on her when it's on her right? yeah we're, we're not jumping actually I would yeah it's close third right but we're we're shifting characters yeah it does right? shift characters it's it is an interesting uh, thing that he achieves yeah. Um, it's similar to the pitch black thing, you know. I love movies that sort of fuck around with like the idea of the main character, you know. Right, right. Um, and you totally think like you are totally on board with her being the main character the whole time. You're on her side, and then she gets shot by Benicio del Toro. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> uh, and then we're just like, and then and then we just like leave her after she kind of gets uh gets a a reality check from Josh Brolin. Right. And then mm-hmm. we just start following Benicio del Toro and we see, you know, him commit this act of atrocity that isn't so atrocious when you realize who he's doing it to. You know, <laughs> I mean, it is. For sure. It is. It's a hor- horrifying scene. But at the same time, it's like. You know. It's. It's, it's, it's you, like you actually yeah. sympathize with it. You know, it's when I right, watched right. it, his revenge scene. It is atrocious, but when you know what happened to him and what this person is doing on a daily basis, you it's poetic justice in the sense right. that, you know, it's it's horrifying, but nonetheless it it's definitely it fits the crime. You know? Yeah. Well and and what's interesting is I would actually call this a revenge film. Right? Mm. Like like it culminates in a revenge film, but Unlike any other revenge, well, and we've talked about revenge films before, right? Where we we uh, 
you know, Quaid and I have gone on extensive walks talking about revenge films and how the best ones almost like um, are 50 50 with with its exposition and then the build up. Yeah. uh, And then the the revenge. revenge. Right. Yeah. Um, And this was interesting because it's like not like they don't build it up at all. You know, when the revenge is happening, you almost just have to like feel the history. Um, And yet it works. It's crazy. It works so well. (laughs) (laughs) And this is this is why I think people need to kind of get on board with Denny Villeneuve being like, I I would say that he's probably going to be considered the master of our generation. Um, or yeah, I guess not he's our definitely in competition, his generation. You know, he's going to, you know how people talk about Spielberg and Scorsese and, and those names. Well, yeah. he's going to be one of those people for our era for sure. Right. And he's just every single film he pumps out is just, like one um perfect you know like it's brilliant <laughs> but two like just pushes the boundaries of like what you normally say you can and can't do you know like if 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 we went to film school and we were like hey we're going to make a revenge film where the revenge is like the last 10 minutes of the movie and we don't actually follow <laughs> that character at all through the rest of the movie yeah, you know, until that last twenty minutes, yeah. right? They would be like, you know, we would be laughed out of the classroom. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's, I think that's actually why Villeneuve isn't being recognized yet. Is that it's not just like great; it's actually genius. You know, <laughs> and I mean, that, I, I would say he is being recognized. I mean, he's yeah, amazing. definitely, but him. but he's not; he's still not being brought up by critics as like, you know, one of the best directors of our generation. He's constantly sure. scoring like. Um, between like 60 and like 89 on Rotten Tomatoes, even for his like masterpieces, you know, and, and like you mean when you film? look at Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> when they're talking about like a like a master director or when they're watching a master director's films, they like don't want to rate their movies bad because they're going to look like an idiot. Sure. You know? And yeah, I don't think people I don't think critics have that fear of rating Denis Villeneuve bad yet. You know, sure. Where like I, I feel you, you know, we're going to go back and call those people idiots in the future we're going to go back and like see all those critics that gave denny villeneuve's film a 30 percent you know and mm-hmm. be like you're a dumbass you know <laughs> but they I don't know it. that yet right and it's it's funny because like um that concept is so well represented with movies that are considered masterpieces from before rotten tomatoes existed they all have 100 percent. yeah yeah right <laughs> Like these people are just scared of calling out these films, right? Um, and I think I think that that lack of um, and and it, it stems from it stems from a lack of knowledge, right? Um, the the fear that pushes them to do that kind of thing. But um, I think if they understood how good Villeneuve was, they wouldn't be. Um, they're not like panning his films, obviously, but you know they wouldn't be taking them lightly. Yeah, because that's um, what we want from our critics, man. We just want them to shut up and tell the <laughs> truth. <laughs> uh, but um, anyways, um, yeah, about Sicario, Sicario some yeah. things I have. Um, the violence in this in this movie is some of the single best gunplay I've ever seen in a movie. Oh yeah, um, the scenes where they're in convoys and they're shooting back and forth are fucking fantastic. The mm-hmm. opening scene with Emily Blunt with the FBI raid is amazing. Yeah, the really cool scene with the sort of black and white heat vision, um, all of it is so good. The violence in this movie 
with guns. You know, I haven't seen a movie in a long time that made guns feel that lethal and, uh, you know, not action movie-esque, you know, real loud. The sound on it is so fucking good. Um, I would like to point out uh, an actor that a lot of people's name, uh, a lot of people wouldn't know the name of, uh, Jeffrey Donovan, who's sort of like um, Josh Brolin's second in command. And he's in both the, the films. He's fantastic. He was in a in a movie called Shot Color as well mm-hmm. that I recently watched. I fucking love him. He's so fucking good, and this guy deserves to be put in a lead role at some point. Um, Do it, man. Uh, yeah, that's why I <laughs> look out for these guys, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I I love this movie, and as you were saying, there's not a film that I think Ed series even this even the sequel is really good. Frankly, it's not as good, but it's a really fucking good movie. Yeah. Um, that. More I it, realistic, but. realistically illustrates um, what you know, what you might call the deep state or the more the the shadow government, how it operates, and to what degree you know that we're effectively in league with the cartels on behalf of some of them fighting the others, you know, right, and this sort of thing. Um, and you know, you use the idealism of Emily Blunt, and she gets this harsh wake up call at the very end with Benicio del Toro. And Benicio Del Toro is so fucking good in this movie. Oh, yeah. You know, he's so good. Well, and I think I think the the interesting thing about this film is that like the I would say the general American. uh, Mirrors Emily Blunt's idealism. Yeah. You know, and Uh, stupid idealism. (laughs) Right, right. And like she's by no means a stupid character. Right. Like exactly. Like when she has her eyes open, she has her eyes opened. Right. Uh, As Mm -hmm. seen in that final scene when like she, she has that, uh, that initial emotional reaction that like, I think any of us would have um, where she's, you know, pulls out her gun and she's about to go shoot the guy. Cause she's like, well, if he's dead, you know, that means yeah. I'm right. Right. <laughs> you know, and um, you know, she realizes that she would essentially be doing what they're doing. And yeah, that scene uh, when they're crossing back over to the U.S. on the the border, and uh, she doesn't get out of the car when they all get out of the car because they spot the the Mexican cartel gangs in their cars. Right, right. You know, you know, it's a great illustration of that. Great illustration of the the lethality of the violence and how well you feel it as well. Also, yeah, uh, Roger Deakins. Yep, fantastic. Cinematography. The master. He's my he's my favorite DP. Me too. Um, <laughs> he's great. I love him. Yeah. Oh man, I just. Well, do you want to move on then? Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's move on. So number eight, then, right? My turn. Yep. I think you had this below me. It's uh, Nolan's great fucking film. His magnum, uh, in contention for his magnum opus, in my <laughs> opinion. Yeah. Um, 2010 Inception. Love it. Yeah. That's, so that's my number thirteen. So still right, very close. Well, I'll lead it off then. Um, What I would say about this film is it's not only do just average day people love this film because of how cool it is and the great concept behind it. Mm -hmm. But if you're a filmmaker, there's an entire other layer to this film that is just so fucking satisfying and amazing. It's essentially a commentary, not just on storytelling, but particularly filmmaking. Um, This is what the, you know, the movie's about to me is like literally about filmmaking. It's about a director getting together his crew <laughs> and making a film. And it blows me away. It, it blows me away in how he illustrates this. And how, it's a very meta, you know, it's a very meta concept, but 
It's brilliant. I didn't I catch that at all, but you um, you haven't you haven't no. <laughs> read that into it. Oh man, that's how I've read into it. Uh, you know, you have Leo as the director. You have uh, what's sure. her name, uh, Ellen Page as the DP. No, the writer. The writer. Uh, yeah. You have uh, Tom Hardy as the actor. You know, sure. And you have all this. You know the the financier. What's his name? The uh, Ken. Watanabe, oh, the producer. You know, yeah. he's like the studio. He's like the representation of the studio. Sure. Uh, and of course, you have his personal storyline, Leo's personal storyline, as sort of like the struggle with the director. And I think uh, Marion, of course, Marion's fantastic fucking role again for Marion. Um, yeah. Represents uh, sort of the the true the initial desire behind wanting to make the movie, almost sort of like wanting having to kill your baby <laughs> in sure. many ways. Um, and sort of having to, you know, and I love that scene as well. I just see that ending scene between Leo and uh, Ken Watanabe as, you know, the director coming back to the studio executive <laughs> after the after the struggle. And they're just looking at each other. He's like, and the director's trying to sell him again. He's like, remember when we were young, man, man? Like, please don't fuck my movie. Please, I love please, it. please. I love it. I mean, it's such a perfect reading. You have to watch this movie with that in mind. Yeah. Um, no, I love it's that. It's so good. It's similar to, I would say, Inception in many ways is also a remake of The Prestige to me in, in a small way, in okay. a similar way, because The Prestige is also dealing with, um, with sort of filmmaking and storytelling in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I mean, I just fucking love this movie. No, that's that's I fucking great. Love it. Um, one thing that I want to point out with this film is that like in the uh, everyone references that final final scene, and I think that it, it actually does the same thing that the original Blade Runner did. Um, where they kind of ask this question and everyone argues the question and the answer is obvious, right? Where, you know, in Blade Runner, it was like, is he, is he human or is he not human? Yeah. Right. In this one, it's, uh, is it a dream or is it not a dream? And, um, I think initially someone would come in and be like, well, that's like, you know, it, it's not a dream because if it was a dream, it would be stupid because then the whole movie would be and it was just a dream movie. But, you know, I, that's not the point, though. Right. I think yeah. the answer is obvious and the answer is actually the same for both of them. And the answer is it doesn't matter. Yes. Oh, really? OK. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I guess right? I could see that as a meta commentary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he what, is both a robot and he is also, uh, I would say, in the dream. So, well, well, it, so. Well, no, I, I think that the answer, the answer truly is that it doesn't matter. And and like, yeah, on the deeper level. No, I completely agree with you. I completely yeah. agree with you. And I completely see what you're saying. But um, I think, you know, on the practical level, if we really want to say <laughs> yes or no, you know what I mean? I think even saying yes, that it is a dream contributes to the fact that it doesn't matter because it's sort of representing reality. Sure, sure. And sort of I think in Blade Runner, it matters a little more. But I think I think in Blade Runner, especially the original one, it matters more that we can't answer it. Sure. Right. Um, and that's, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a bit, but just kind of like that whole idea of, um, you know, in, in Blade Runner, it was, it doesn't matter because, um, I feel like I'm alive. I have my memories and they're mine, you know, and I live mm-hmm. my life knowing that I'm alive, whether I'm a robot or I'm a human. Right. That's very cool. But we should um, save that for uh, yeah. Blade Runner. <laughs> and then, uh, Inception. Well, and, and I think it actually relates more here. Um, okay. And so in Inception, you know, you have the dream, you have um, reality and the whole the whole struggle with um, Maz, was it? Um, 
uh, yeah. Marion Cotillard's character, right? Um, yeah. But the whole struggle with her um, is that he uh, convinced her that she was in a dream, right? Mm-hmm. And that he that she had chosen to die, right, to wake herself up. Yeah. Right. And you have that whole like moment where, you know, he's sure of reality because he has his totem. Right. And uh you know that she died throughout the whole movie, right? So you're you're kind of on board with the idea that it's that it's uh that it's not a dream. Right. And then at the very end, when he spins that, he kind of introduces the idea that maybe she was right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I, it adds on this entire other layer as well with uh, the sort of thing I'm saying, because, you know, uh, I don't believe that Christopher Nolan meant this, but I think you could look at this and you could almost say that Inception is sort of almost a romantic manifesto of this idea of uh, the human mind's ability in terms of its creative output to almost create reality or something that parallels truth. Um, Well, and, and I think, I think the point at the end is that it's that no matter what, it's a choice and the choice is to live wherever you are. Yeah. Right. Um, And, but if Marion Cotillard represents the initial idea, the initial spark of falling in love with the idea of the film you're making, you know, it's an interesting uh, other layer to sure. I guess I look at the relationship. I guess I hadn't thought of it with that lens. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's interesting now that you say that. Yeah, and I, I really do wonder if that's like just just in a purely like caricature way, it totally fits. You know, yeah, I mean, it fits so well that it has to be on purpose, especially because he did this with Prestige as well. I mean, yeah. I just can't watch this film. You can see the humanity. It's a similar thing with Interstellar. You know, how I was talking about there's the humanity, and then you were like, yeah, there's the humanity, but there's also all of this. You know, yeah, like there's definitely the human core to this film, but I think the thing that's being talked about here is storytelling. It's it's filmmaking. Maybe, yeah. Um, and that's why uh, I love it. I mean, I guess I guess I haven't watched it in that light yet, so I'm not. I'm like a little hesitant to just like go gung ho <laughs> and jump on board. <laughs> we gotta but, rewatch. Uh, it. <laughs> I definitely do. Um, that's interesting though. Uh, but yeah, no, I I do think that the end is is like the answer there isn't is he dreaming that he is dreaming or that he's not dreaming because. I've literally done the math for the, you know, going up and down through, you know, dream layers. And there's no way to figure it out. Right. Like he ends up on the same layer that he left on. But, you know, we don't know if he was already in a dream layer. And like Marion Cotillard's character does make a good point that, you know, his life is ridiculous and dreamlike. Yeah. You know. Well, that's the point. Um, like, that's what I'm saying is like, it's all a dream. And that's why I would say it's a dream, but that's sort of the, the exact similar point that you're sort of getting at, which is it's what matters is, you know, that you live where you are. Right. Um, um, and, and there is no way to definitively decide whether it's a dream or not, because if you say that it is a dream, you're basically saying that like it was a dream when it started, right? Which you have mm-hmm. no proof of. Right. Mm-hmm. So like there's, there's actual no way to definitively prove it, which I think is the point. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that, you know, he by the end of the film, he has become OK with living in the layer that he's chosen. Yeah. Right. And if this was about the filmmaker's journey, right, um, that would essentially be OK with living <laughs> with the film that you've ended up making. Yeah. Um, and letting go of that initial 
you know, what Marion Coltiard represents that initial idea, the the spark, the thing you're fighting for. Yeah. But regardless of whether, you know, the film thing is actually part of it or not, um, the message is actually still the same. Right. Which is that, you know, it doesn't matter and you have to, you know, eventually choose to um, accept your reality. Yeah. I mean, we're saying pretty similar things. We're saying pretty similar things. We have a slightly different language. Yeah. Um, But yeah. Okay. Sweet. Well, let's move on then. Yep. Number seven. Yeah, go for it. So number seven for me is um, we've done a whole episode on it already, so we shouldn't cover it too long. But the king. I have the king as well at a higher position. Cool. Uh, So we'll do that then. So should I do number seven? Go ahead. All right. Number seven for me is something you absolutely have higher than me, uh, but I have pretty damn high. It is the master himself, Denis Villeneuve's 2016 film, The Arrival. Or Arrival, I'm sorry. I do have it higher. All right. So... Move on to number six. Nick, your turn. Cool. Um, so my number six is Damien Chazelle again oh, with his whiplash. third entry into my tw- top 25. Yeah. Um, but this is his uh, 2014 film Whiplash. Go for it. Man, this film. It was so. Sorry, I'm what? Sorry. No, I'm so sorry. I always said I, I had this film on my list for the first couple drafts. So. Yeah. So this film is just absolutely brilliant in my opinion it's um like i think the insight is um fairly apparent because i think they talk about it a lot um but you know it it is about the road to greatness and what it what it requires right yeah and it's it's really like a no holds barred take on it right um and you have uh, you know, you have this jazz drummer who's trying to become the best in the world, right? Not not make it in his you know, like rankings in state or whatever, right? Like he's trying to become one of the best in the world, right? Yeah. And his drive is psychotic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he is kind of like introduced to this teacher who expects way too much of everyone. Right. Yeah. And, and he's, he's being, he's a teacher, not to, um, you know, not as job, but, um, he's a teacher to find this person, find this great person and, um, you know, nurture them. Right. Mm-hmm. And this comes out as this like horrible, abusive, um, behavior. Right. And like, is something that, you know, especially these days, someone would absolutely be fired for. And in this film, he does get <laughs> fired for, Yeah, you know, and I don't know, having this, uh, have, having this like ruthless person kind of, uh, pushing you and like trying to reach perfection, just, cre- I, I don't know. It, it, the whole movie is so tense and it's all about the pursuit of greatness, right? And when you get like one of the things that I loved about this film too, is that it showed how everyone in your life won't understand. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's absolutely true. Yeah. And and like from, you know, his girlfriend to his dad, to his, you know, extended family, you know, nobody understands to varying degrees. Right. And mm-hmm. I would I would argue that in the end, in the very end, his his 
father finally understands. I love that. That's the single shot where he's yeah. seeing him through the crack of a door. And well, and I want to talk about that in a on. second, but that, that yeah. final scene, which I think, I think I would argue that Damien Chazelle is one of the best directors in the world at creating final scenes, you mm. know, that really wrap wraps everything up. And that's why he's in my top 25, three times. Is he three out of three? Actually, yeah. is he? Yeah, he is. Huh? Damn. Okay. So, Three out of his three films are in my top 25 for the decade, you know, and that is that's a fucking achievement, you know, <laughs> not yeah. to say that I'm like, I'm the fucking like, I'm the achievement, but for him to make those three <laughs> films, right? <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. Um, uh, but Whiplash, like that, that final scene was just jaw dropping, you know? And having everything play out the way that it does, where he kind of plays this um, drum solo and he's kind of trampling on the instructor, right? Mm. Um, J.K. Simmons' character. and Who's great. Yeah, very great. This is one of, I'd say that this is one of his best performances of his I think he, uh, he won the Oscar, right? Oh, did he? That's I think great. he did. Um, but... You know, uh, there's there's this uh, moment between them where he kind of like realizes what he's doing and then, you know, lets him lets him do it. And I, I think that like this this moment is when he achieves greatness, right, where he he's in front of this crowd of incredibly important people playing a drum solo that will like, you know, go down <laughs> in history. Yeah. And he will Absolutely. go down with it. And like J.K. Simmons realizes what's happening and he like he his nurturing as brutal and ruthless as it was is coming to fruition. And like. Yeah, he even helps him. There's that moment yeah. where the symbol or something or whatever it's called is falling. Yeah. And, uh, and he he writes it, you know, right. And there's right. like a reconciliation there almost like um, like both our main characters sort of finally understands him. Right. Uh, and is, you know, about to achieve that moment. So, right. And, and they have this moment together where, you know, he's like playing the solo. It does a close up of, I love this so much. It does this like close up of, um, what's his name? Um, Miles Teller. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does this close up of Miles Teller, goes like cuts to a close up of J.K. Simmons, like extreme close up of, of both of them, right? Like, yeah. Um, creating this very like intimate moment between them. And then, like, out of that, they show his actual father, right? Mm. The man that's like, you know, you know, is supposed to be nurturing him in accordance with society, right? Yeah. Um, and then you just see him and he's like shot in this like medium wide, far back behind the curtains. And he just has this look of like, you know, seeing his son for the first time in his life. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's a great shot. Yeah, no, and, and it's just like this, this, uh, it's this incredible climactic moment, and I would say this is the climax of the film, right? Yeah, the final moment is the climax of the film, and I love, I love that it cuts so straight much. to black. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, and this was such a well-made movie, and I actually think that this deserved to win in two thousand fourteen for best picture. Was it hmm. nominated? I can't uh, remember. Possibly. I don't know. Yeah. Um, 
What did win? Birdman? Well, I will look that up for you, buddy. Um, I would say this movie is definitely very... Uh, uh, appeals to people, young people that are trying to achieve great things, you know, especially creative things, you know? Sure. So, you know, me and you watching this movie, you know, it's definitely very much like, oh, man. Yeah. I, I want to do that so badly. <laughs> well, I mean, more than that, though, it's not even... I don't think it was even about wish fulfillment, but more so like the understanding of the cost. No, that's exactly what right. I mean. Though. That's yeah, exactly what I mean. Um, because uh, twelve years a slave one. Oh, okay. two thousand fourteen. You know, I actually haven't seen that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, as far as what I've seen, Whiplash I think deserved to win. But um, anyways, the yeah. The, I think this is a film that this this generation in particular, um, it's important that we watch, right? Because I think we're so concerned with not hurting each other that we forget what it takes to become great. You know? Yeah, I mean, watching this, film, even, you know? watching this film reminded me of a particular moment in film school where a teacher, famously a uh, harsh teacher, um, for good reason though, uh, yeah. had a student rebellion form against him because of the way he was treating some of the students he was being really hard on them and very similar to not to the extreme of simmons in this movie but yeah it was a very similar thing and i always really liked that teacher and some of me and the other students made sure to like write letters and speak to some of the faculty uh to give you know voice our support from so he didn't get fired Mm -hmm. but it's a similar thing where it's like a lot of these students are such babies they want to be told that everything is great they don't want criticism you know I love the idea that this guy sat down and watched someone's short film and looked at them and said, you'd win the golden turd at the golden turd festival. You know, (laughs) I mean, that's what you need to hear, especially, you know, if that makes you react badly, then you especially need to hear it. So, Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, the, the amount of, the amount of pain that he endures to become great, you know, is, is physical too. physical pain, emotional pain, you know, all whole nine yards. Right. It's great. It's it's really it's really something that I feel like is missing from our generation in general. Um, and I think it's something that I think it's a very, 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 very important film for us. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it, I think it sucks because like a lot of people came in and took this film literally. You know. And like I my sister went to um uh music conservatory so like a lot of her friends watched this film and like their whole criticism was like oh well i mean like a teacher would never do that and yeah i, I was just sitting there like that's the whole point yeah <laughs> yeah um but what a weird thing to say a teacher would never do that therefore it would be bad right okay um <laughs> but um yeah no I, I think i think it's it's missing the whole point right where um you really have to um, you know, th- this film isn't just about what it's literally about. And, you know, like every film in this, in this list, I would say it's not about what it's literally about. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, no whiplash number six for me. Nice, man. Yeah. Well, I guess, uh, I'll do my number six. Um, I believe you had this ranked lower, so you'll have to tell us where, but, uh, it is, of course, David Fincher's 2014 film, Gone Girl. 
that was uh 14 for me but yeah okay uh i love this david fincher movie it is i think my my third favorite fincher film i would probably say cool um i rewatched it so many times uh rosman pike is spectacular in this i think this mm-hmm. is possibly ben affleck's best performance um up there with things like the town yeah but what this movie is about is so interesting and it's so interesting to see um it illustrated in this way and see cinema be able to talk about this yeah. um and you know that's essentially uh you know it's almost it's almost playing around with sloppism or something you know being stuck in your own head you know you're so stuck in your own head how can you actually know someone like how can i actually know you nick like yeah you're just some guy <laughs> standing there and i just i sort of process your words as you say them to me and i sure. sort of and you know anthropomorphize you sure um and just seeing that just seeing the um the story of them falling in love and they're sort of presenting their best selves to each other mm-hmm. and then they're more real they're too tired to put up the facade anymore and then there's a moment of almost honesty you know where the mask comes completely off and roseman pike turns out to be a complete serial killer now oh yeah of course like monster, this was the, but... <laughs> yeah with the caveat of course that um you know her narration of the origin story isn't all true and you figure that out but you, right. you can tell that there's definitely some truth to it and she even says there needs to be like the very beginning right um otherwise it's not believable right um and I just really love that. I love those that opening scene, and I think it's the ending scene as well, where she's her head's on his chest, you know, and he's yeah. like, "What are you thinking about? What have we done to each other?" You know what right, I mean? And that's right. literally what it is. You're just, she's looking right. He's looking right into her eyes. Is she's laying there and look, looks up at him, and it's just like, "How do I know who the fuck you are at all?" You know, it's yeah. all you know. And you know, they do get a moment of honesty, and then I, I, I just it's it's such a good um examination of that as a as a sort of a mystery thriller uh it's fantastic and then of course the the scary horrific moments in this you know when she kills um neil patrick harris Mm -hmm. and the you know the scheme she dreams up and ben affleck's encounters with the press and is the hijinks he has to get into right it's so much fun and it has that that fincher's smoothness to it you know yeah yeah um um, I fucking love this movie. I actually have an interesting uh, experience with this film. Uh, because, so I watched it the first time. It was great. You know, uh, I think I watched it with a friend of mine uh, from film school and we, we went together and, you know, we both loved it and we, we went out for drinks and stuff after and talked about it for a long time. But um, my second time watching this film, um, I actually watched it with one of my exes. And oh, okay. um, do I know this ex? What do I know this ex? I believe so. Okay. But um no, she, she basically after we watched the film, she proclaimed Roseman Pike's her- uh character to be her new hero and I was like, "Well, that's the red flag <laughs> that ends it for me." <laughs> um <laughs> so like that was that was a very like uh eye-opening moment where like, you know, the actual message of this film became real for me in that moment. Sure. You know, and I was just like Wow, I guess David Fincher was right. <laughs> yeah, it's so um, interesting, you know, the ending of this film where he wins her back with that interview he does with the hard-hitting interviewer that's supposed to like tear into him. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh for murdering her even though she's still alive. Right. And he wins her back. She's watching it and he she realizes he knows me, you know, and that's what brings them back together. That's what brings her back to him ultimately. It's like, 
holy fuck, actually, even though he betrayed me, there's no one in my life ever that is going to actually know me. You know, right. He actually knows me. Right. And then she has to convince him of the same thing, you know, and he's like, yeah, I actually do know her. And she actually is pregnant with my child. And, uh, you know, and his sister was horrified. He's like, how the fuck are you going <laughs> to like, it's like, you know, what are we going to do? What have we done to each yeah, other? There's like, nothing you line. can do. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, and it's sort of like, imagine being the wife of David Fincher after watching this movie, you know, like his entire commentary on sort of marriage in many ways, relationships in this film, I would just be like, you know, I, if I was David Fincher, I'd just be like, no, 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 no. Like, this isn't about us. This isn't about, <laughs> this is not what I think about when, laying in bed next to you <laughs> yeah no, but like that's that that was like it was so strange for me the second time i watched this film because like i ha- i i literally had that moment that ben affleck has at the beginning of the film you know like how do i really know you you yeah. know with my ex after watching that movie and i was like okay yeah. so i have two choices here right now i can either end up where ben affleck was <laughs> in this film or i could break up with this person you know yeah and so three weeks later i was i was broken up with them but uh no it, it was just this 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 movie has a very uh special place for me because of that <laughs> and like i i saw it as this oh, sure. uh, you know it, it explodes it, it exposes a landmine in my life you know nice. um no david it was, fincher saved you one huh? fincher david fincher i know you're not listening to this podcast but if you are or if you hear this one day you saved my life. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. But um yeah, anyways. Uh so that was your number six, right? Yeah. So go ahead and do number five, man. Okay, so number five, I I think you said this was lower on your list, but for me this is um Denny Villa News, uh 2016 film Arrival. Yes, I said this was number seven, so yeah. not that far apart. Yeah. Yeah, this film is brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. It's so good. Uh, yeah, no, it's. I I think it might be my uh, favorite to watch of all of Denny Villeneuve's films. Um, how do the I music. The, yeah, music. the music, the Max uh, Richter score. score at the beginning, and then I think everyone uses that song, but it's so fucking good, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, who who was the uh, who did the actual music for the like uh, Johan Johansson? The rest of it, I think. I do not know, but I think that's probably it because he was his guy until he died. Yeah. Uh, um, yep, Johan Johansson. Cool. Who's like in the same sort of style as Max Richter? Yeah, I'd say I'd say actually a little more simplistic. Um, yeah, not in a bad way, but um, no. See, so you have to use that word, man. I'm telling you, you have I know, to use I know. Simple. You just I have know, to. It just makes sense. <laughs> but it's used in so many negative connotations. I know, but Ling doesn't do it in every situation. You know what I mean? <laughs> True. Um, but yeah. Anyways, so <sighs> this film. I I show this film to anyone who ever tells me that they're afraid to die. Um, <laughs> I know sure. that sounds weird, but it makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyone who ends up understanding this film, um, honestly, I I truly believe this ends up conquering their fear of death. Um, yeah, and 
really what you have to what you have to understand is like while this film is on the surface about an alien invasion it is it is in fact a um a story about how a woman decides to keep her child yeah right um and I, I I don't I don't want it to get into like the whole like abortion argument, sure. um, because I'm, I don't think that that's exactly um, what it's trying what to it's get about. at, right? Yeah. Um, but I think I think it's more about how um, life, like no matter how short, is worth living, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I'm not I, I don't want to go into as to why yet because that's that's what the whole film is about um because it would take forever to uh we need to do about. an episode and on yeah it. i think it would be good to do an episode on it um but this movie is a masterpiece so there's not a wasted second in true villainue fashion you know yeah um it all surrounds his single insight it's extremely compact extremely to the point extremely well thought out and very persuasive you know and agree extremely profound and i just i just think that uh you know it definitely deserves to be in my top five here Um, yeah my my mother hates science fiction i can barely get her to watch any science fiction with me really and uh she refuses to this day to watch interstellar i got her to watch this and she loved it you know she bought the movie on her own nice um that really got to her and i think that's you know that's what you're talking about the message is so clear on an emotional level yeah um that it's you know you can't ignore it and you know the sci-fi is there but it's it's in your face it's very weird and very weird concept but at the same time it's grounded you know you're not right flying through space you know well because it's not about it's not about the aliens exactly you know? um, it's about yeah it's about you know experiencing life and uh well and you know like we were just talking about life affirmative movies in a way in many ways once again this is another uh, life affirmative movie that's not a life affirmative movie you know <laughs> like right so. well, well it starts from language right um yeah and it it, it it basically evolves the insights evolve from just the basic pieces of language and finally get to the like to, it's about meaning almost you yeah, know yeah, it's about exactly. the meaning of language and, transferring you know, it finally gets to that point where it's about you know life and death and what's worth um yeah what's worth living for you know um yeah no it's great uh we'll we'll definitely do an episode on this film oh we're gonna do episodes on all the films that we probably mentioned frankly at some point yeah <laughs> if, we, if this runs for years yeah. did you have anything <laughs> um, to add about arrival i mean frankly you covered it i don't want to go i don't want to deep dive you know like i said it's yeah it's really about i really like that transition of um you know, a linguist going in and trying to decipher the meaning of a language and that transferring into uh, a different perception of time, which al- allows her to see the meaning of her life and yeah. the meaning of the people she loves, um, you know, in a, in a more almost uh, cosmic, I would say, or, you know, uh, a higher, a more enlightened manner. Right. It's very, it's very good. Uh, it's so good. Yeah. So, Yeah. Cool. What was I your, would say uh, easily my second favorite villain in a movie because we're going to get to my first eventually. Okay. Um, my fifth. Is that where we're on? Uh, yep. Uh, you just mentioned this yourself. It is a film that we have talked about. It's my, I think my only film from 2019. It is The King by nice. David Machad. 
And um, we have done a whole episode on this. It's our second episode, actually. And we're probably going to do a second episode. Yeah. Um, I've been talking. Maybe with my- at some point when we do like a lot of films where we don't have like a definitive uh, feeling about the insight, we could like combine them in one episode, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, well, actually, uh, I've been talking to my editor more about this and uh, she she put me onto the concept of vainglory and how that absolutely plays into the insight. So I'm going to watch it again with that in mind. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, we'll definitely do another episode on the king. Yeah. Um, but yeah, honestly, I say let's just skip over it and save ourselves some time. Yeah. You can watch that episode. It's just fantastic. It's all around fantastic. Great music, great visuals, great acting, a great story, a fantastic insight. You know? Yep. So, yep. All right. You're number four. My number four is uh, 2011 Nicholas Winding Refn uh, Drive. Okay. Well, I have that higher than you, my friend. So great. we'll have to wait a second. Sounds good. What's your number four? I number four is the great film Hell or High Water um, <laughs> by I, I have that higher than David you. McKenzie. You have that higher than me, but it is literally number three. So weird we're because, you know, my about. number three is uh drive. <laughs> oh, perfect. Okay, so we flip flopped. I, I actually uh, so, expected, you know, it's funny. I actually expected th- those to be flipped for us. Yeah. Um, weird. But, you know, I did, too. I Hell and High Water does seem like more mean. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. Strange. strange. Um, so I guess we got to do Hell or High Water first. It's your number three, my number four. So go ahead. All right. So, yeah, no, Hell or High Water is about these two uh, brothers who become bank robbers to steal money back. That's, you know, theirs, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's uh, it's really a tale about two brothers, you know, and uh it's sorry it's made by uh david mckenzie um have you seen any other films he's done yes i believe i have i think he did uh outlaw king recently it was a netflix Mm. original it was pretty good but he's done perfect sense which is a fantastic film people should watch with uh anna mcgregor and uh what's her name um great french actress uh, eva green um about people that have a disease where they lose their senses one by one it's yeah. really good. And then he did this prison movie, which I have yet to see, but everyone who I know has seen it loves it called Startup. So, okay. Yeah. No, but I would say, well, it's your turn. Go, go, go. No, no, no that's okay. <laughs> we, can, we can kind of both go on this one. We're, we're like three and four on these ones. So I think we should just, <laughs> yeah. just go for well, it. <laughs> if you're, if you're offering, uh, David McKenzie, similar to Malik, is another figure where I'm like, he's doing it so I can do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure. Like Hell or High Water, Hell or High Water is a type of film that I so perfectly uh, desire to make, you know, yeah. these crime films that deal with families and sort of almost class in a sense as well. Sure. I fucking love it. Go ahead. No, we, we, I mean, we always talk about that one scene, the uh, enemy of everyone scene. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, you're Apache. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm Apache. That means I'm the enemy of everyone. Yeah. Well, then I'm Apache. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, having these, it's the, the violence in this movie too, is another example of just that, that type of violence that turns your stomach, mm. you know? And it's so, uh, I would, I wouldn't say it's necessarily gory, but it's so dispassionate, Yeah, you know? Um, it's, 
it's extreme. It's an extremely, extremely good film. And uh, I don't think I necessarily want to talk about it too much because again, we should do this as a, an episode. Yeah, we should. Um, we should. Um, I would, I would like to say a thing about it then real fast. Yeah, we're no, go about ahead. To move on. Uh, it's an interesting film to me because it deals with the rise and fall of certain peoples and the land itself mm-hmm. and the land the people have and what you'll do to continue on, you know, to protect and provide for your family. Yeah. And the sort of things you'll have to endure, especially in an era of decline. Right. Um, it's very interesting. I love crime films and I love crime films where the bad guys and the good guys are both good guys. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And right. Uh, really the only bad guy in this movie is the bank. Um, so right. to speak. Um, but we should absolutely do a movie about this. So maybe we don't go any farther than that, but it is yeah. interesting that the first and ending shot are of the land itself. Right. Well, actually, I actually, I actually want to build on that and say that it, it's very, uh, it's a very kind of like sobering take of um, at first you would kind of assume American history, but um, beyond that, I think it's great that they put it into modern day instead of made it making it like a historical um, event. Yeah. You know, because they, they could have easily done that to make it like an American film, but I think they made it a very human film by putting it in modern day and saying that this still happens, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, no, just, just uh, the idea that the, the land is just, yeah. No, we'll, we'll get into we'll get into it. We'll yeah. get into it. The rise and falls of peoples, the land, yeah, right, the decline, right. the claim on land, man. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like how they use the um, native uh, Native Americans right. as a sort of an example of what they're going through. Right, you know, right. That this sort of this working class in rural America is just being ground into the dust. And right, well, yeah, it would have been really easy for them to have like turned this into a virtue signaling movie, but they didn't. Yeah, right. Um, Almost the opposite as well. Yeah, well, frankly. well, and it's it's nice because I think they they um here uh, he he very much acknowledged the um uh how like the the history of this kind of action right throughout mm-hmm. america and um you know put it into a setting that's fictional right and that mm-hmm. that almost helps uh kind of alleviate like any bias towards um what any person might feel about that in our current culture right and lets you completely completely empathize um with the characters right and and it's because it's it's a fictional setting and it it does exactly what i kind of like hope to do with science fiction and uh fantasy where you know you're you're taking um real things that the, the world needs to hear right and pulling it away from any you know political context and giving it um giving those insights back in a way that uh you know everybody can empathize and sympathize with interesting i i'm excited to do the episode on this because i think I, we might have a small little disagreement there i do think there is a little bit of a a modern day political context to this frankly no i mean there um, definitely is but like it's okay. it's still well then i agree with what you're saying yeah. entirely then i see what you're saying um because what you're saying there in terms of everyone should be able to empathize with this yeah you would have to be an ideologue of a certain type of ideology to not empathize with those guys right right uh, and yeah so i agree 
Yeah. Sweet. Cool. And your number three is my number four. Which is Drive. One of my favorite movies of all time. Drive. You are not um, uh, a young man hmm? if you do not love oh, Drive. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Fight Club, okay? Drive is our generation's Fight Club. And if you don't like it, your man card gets taken away from you. <laughs> uh, I, I watched this movie again recently. Um, it's so good. Uh, this is a romance movie. Yeah, once again, it's a the the, the Western romance. Yeah, it's a an example of a good one. Um, I would argue that Ryan Gosling's character in this film is a psychopath. Yeah, but um, I would argue he's, you know, it's almost a a certain type of psychopath that most men can sympathize with. Well, you know, I, I think I think because there's there's kind of like the Hollywood representation of what a psychopath is. Right. And then there's the realization that there's like fucking tens of millions of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, but right. there, there's the, um, I think this is a representation of a real psychopath, right? Not, not the boogeyman psychopath that Hollywood. Likes oh to yeah. Present. No, I, I agree. That's what right. I meant by saying like, once you realize there's, right, right. there's so many of them, you have to right. normalize them. Um, and essentially, essentially when you boil down a, psychopath it's just that they can't feel guilt yeah right um and no i I don't think he does at all right um but i mean yeah are you second guessing yourself (laughs) no no no, i Um, I was just thinking that maybe he like he feels a little bit of guilt at the end yeah well what i would Uh, say is i wouldn't be 100 percent clinical about no but, psychopathy i'd say he's on the spectrum and the best way to describe him being on the spectrum is a psychopath yeah yeah i i, I saw one person talking about how he's autistic and i was like no no he could be slightly autistic but i agree with you he's more psychopath. See, no i think i think the problem was that i, I think the guy who was making that criticism was autistic oh, or, okay. or on the spectrum and it's not that he was trying to relate to it but there's all these like very um uh, well, people on the spectrum relate to people on the spectrum and then they say whatever's on the spectrum is what they are you know what i mean um no well, what, what i think it was was that like in this film there's a lot of empty space in in terms of dialogue right and yeah. empty space where you have to be able to read like human emotion and, and he didn't read it <laughs> and he, he literally said this this person literally said like um there was nothing happening there well, here, right. let me play devil's advocate. I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you. But let me play devil's advocate. There is the clinical definition of autism. And then there's a, a much more popular uh, version of the word that's sort of being bandied about on the internet now these days. Sure. Of autistic, which is not to say like someone that is like, my child is autistic. You know, the sign in the front yard that says autistic child is here, you know. Sure. But it's just more of someone that's, yeah, just socially off. You know, uh, someone that has a little bit of a harder time in those areas. And that is not necessarily um, blind almost when it comes to that. So as devil's advocate, that could be what he's saying. But I agree with you. I'd rather refer to him as a psychopath than an autistic man. Well, and and I don't feel like those things are even on the same like um, direction on that spectrum. Right. Like. One's one's a moral. Um, moral deficiency. The other one is a. Uh, uh, I don't know, like a computational deficiency, right? Yeah, I see that. Um, so like, 
um, traditional autism makes it so you can't really interact with other people, right? Because you you lack the tools to be able to uh, discern facial expressions and um, social cues. Social cues, and like that—that's what I'm saying—is like he is obviously able to discern facial social cues, um, facial facial cues, and sorry, social. Well, cues, he's a warrior expressions you know how could you be a warrior without being able to you know especially in terms of the battle of wits as well right i mean right because he's reading these people he's dealing with them face to face right he's got it he tells christina Hendricks is lying to him you know yeah um who has a great bit part in this movie so um i i have i have like ripped this movie apart and i've i've seen it probably like uh nine or ten times Right. A couple times in theaters and then I bought the DVD and just kept rewatching it, you know, and uh, uh, I'll I'll actually go more into why I think that he's a psychopath. But as far as like as far as being um, just kind of to cut that autistic argument off completely, you Mm -hmm. know, the fact that there are these um, empty spaces in the dialogue where literally the only thing happening is uh, like. Um, the exchange of facial expressions and social cues, yeah. right? Completely dis- discredits the whole like autistic argument. And I would say that the like, person that makes that argument that like w- is watching this film with two people um, giving each other, you know, facial expressions and exchanging silence, <laughs> right? And sees that like, and, and their like read on that is that nothing is happening. Yeah. Right. They're the ones that are unable to read those facial cues. No, I, right. I completely agree with you. I'm my, my but. entire devil's advocate argument was just saying like people use autism almost to just uh, mean, mean on the spectrum. Just strange. Yeah. Yeah. Just um, mean off on the spectrum in any way, except for any particular instance of psychopathy or sociopathy or Asperger's. Yeah. So as far as my um, psychopath argument goes, um, I believe this film is about a monster, right? A scorpion. Right. Mm -hmm. That is going to be a scorpion no matter what. Yeah. Right. And I believe that scorpion is referring to a psychopath. Right. And, you know, essentially he he has um, like a sense of a higher ideal and he lives by his own set of morality and his morality does not stop him. Like he does not see killing a human being as a bad thing. Sure. Right. And. Like I, I liked that he actually does get emotional and he actually does get scared because yeah. I, I think those are those are elements in like traditional Hollywood that um where like you have the psychopath boogeyman who's never afraid, who um shows zero emotion. Well, once again, know? it's just a more it's more real. It's more right. real to how a natural psychopath would be, which is like you can't just completely dehumanize psychopaths, you know. Um, right they do have they do have these things you know and i I love that it was this romance because um you know he does fall in love with his girl and he gives he gives her everything right Mm -hmm. and he gives her everything that a psychopath could give her yeah right and um it this leads up to my favorite scene which i think is the crystallizing scene of the film right which um i don't think we've talked about that before but essentially when we say crystallizing scene we're talking about uh a scene that represents what the entire film is about in a kind of like condensed um, fashion. Okay. Right. Um, is the elevator scene. Right. Yeah. And elevator scene. like 
the use of color and lighting in the scene is so brilliant and it 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 is um obviously altered from kind of being like diegetic lighting right Mm -hmm. um so uh i kind of want to kind of explain that scene a little bit but yeah yeah do you want to do you want to possibly save it for uh an episode about drive (laughs) um i mean i think we can i think we can just get it out of the way and then like maybe okay go ahead it's fine but um (laughs) that's fine we'll do it again (laughs) yeah so uh in this scene when uh when like this is the first time that he kisses the girl right they have this like romantic moment there's a man with a gun in the elevator right yeah and he he like pushes her away from him right and just proceeds after after the kiss right yeah. And he proceeds to brutally murder this man. Right. And it's it's so um it's so dispassionate, right? Yeah. It's so uh it's uh you're not used to people killing other people like this, right? He's he's literally smashing his face into the corner of the elevator with his boot repeatedly over and over he's obviously very angry right (laughs) but um you know because he came to kill the girl that he loves right um Mm -hmm. so you know he's smashing this guy's face in right and when the elevator doors open the girl kind of gets out and she's horrified right the camera cuts to her in in this uh uh, now in she's in the parking garage, which they've correct color corrected to be like blacks and greens, mm-hmm. right? Her whole world is like she's suddenly seen this man for the monster that he is, right? And it cuts back to him, and he's in that like you know orange orange red like glowing area that they just were, looking at her covered in sweat and blood with like you know looking like an animal you know and like this moment is i think the crystallizing scene of this film because it really kind of shows this uh this dynamic where she like sees him for the monster that she is for the first time yeah that he is for the first time you know yeah it is interesting and uh you know in this moment she denies him you know she rejects him yeah um yeah but i think the interesting thing about the the ending of the film is at the end of the day, he keeps himself away from her. Yes. In terms to to protect her, even though she would ultimately uh love him. Right. Know, and, and have him. So yeah, there's there's so much to pull apart in that in this film. And like if we honestly, like I would want to do like a video presentation with the film. <laughs> but yeah. like uh every single scene in this film can be pulled pulled apart exactly like that yeah. um, scene. I mean, be. it's amazing. It's a truly amazing film. You have the use of quadrants, you know, the quadrant cinematography, by the way, cinematographers, uh, Newton, Thomas Siegel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's amazing. I would actually put the cinematography more on Ruffin's shoulders than his, but I don't want to take it away from him. Sure. Uh, the color, you already described the use of color in this. It's fucking amazing. I haven't seen a film other than maybe seven use color as well in a dramatic fashion mm-hmm. to highlight the story elements and what's going on. Yeah. Um, and knowing that Ruffin is colorblind, is amazing to know that he can pull this off. <laughs> I, I think um, he said that's and, why he uses such vibrant colors. 
Okay, that's cool. That's why I like spicy food as well. I have no yeah. sense of smell. So yeah, yeah. Um, also, I would say Cliff Martinez's original score is great, but the mm. the music they what do you call it, sample or buy the license? Yeah, all great too. Is yeah. so fucking good. Is so fucking good. Yeah. The opening sequence, the titles, the stylized lettering. Mm. Um, the all of it's uh, such a mood. One man. of my this favorite movie parts. Is such a fucking mood is the part where he like puts on the uh, mask and it's that like operatic song. Yeah, and he's like seeing them celebrate his friend's death, and it, uh, it's so good, so good. It's such a good movie, and we'll, we'll cover the rest of this film when we get to do an episode about it. But it's a mm-hmm. brilliant film. Um, it is one of those films I honestly that I've think, taken the like time said, to you know, pull apart. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it's it's absolutely fantastic. Like I said, I think this is a generational film. This is a, definitely a film that, you know, for a generation of men, this is going to be their fight club. Yeah. I really feel that And way, you know what? So. Now that we're talking about it, I'd probably switch Drive and Hell or High Water. Um, so do what I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Yep. Anyways. Well. Make the make the change. Um, I'll it's do it. actually I'll do it right now, so it'll be three and four for both of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this talk has made me change my mind already, and just just to, um, you know, go back to what we were saying at the beginning. We reserve the right to change anything <laughs> on this list at any time. So fuck consistency. Um, well, buddy, then it's your it's your turn to do number two. Let's see if I mentioned that earlier or something. All right. Number two. I don't think you did. Um, so we actually did an episode on this one recently. It is. Uh, oh, Hayao Miyazaki's The Wind Rises from 2013. That's great. That was in competition for me as well. Yeah. But this film is so good. I mean, Miyazaki, I think, is one of the best directors of all time. Um, he is constantly constantly under praise because he's animated in the west um do you really feel that way i don't feel like no, that's I, actually no, true I, is I that true he, people fucking love him he gets his movies rewatched in the, the seminars around the year yeah in, but in i think i think that's the thing is like the pu- public I, th- what i mean when i say underrated is i think that the critics underappreciate them oh okay right okay well I, like, I get what you're saying i guess i just dismiss the critics in my mind completely sure i don't sure. expect them to like anything i like if they like something i like then it's an indictment of my taste right you know what i mean but again so. it's it's another one of those things where like i feel like he's not brought up often enough when we're talking about master directors and i put him right yeah. alongside directors like scorsese and absolutely you know and, and like um having uh yeah i mean like i I would say that for me personally i think miyazaki is the best director in the east and villanue is the best director in the west um interesting but uh they're actually very similar um in their style i could see that i could see that it's interesting as well that uh the wind rises is the only film he made this decade yeah so um also we did an entire episode on that just yep. like uh the king uh we ended up finding the insight to uh towards the end which was um, yeah which is a good thing <laughs> but uh it's really fucking good yeah no this this film wrecked me when i saw it and like also completely changed my perspective on life and i think that's my top five films all had that effect on me where like they just opened my eyes to something new and mm. that's that is why they're in my top five is because they had such a profound effect on me. Um, You're very good, but yeah, no, there's there's definitely a uh, 
there's a moment when a film can change your life. And I think, I think that's why we become filmmakers, you know, is be, yeah. is be, I don't, I don't know any person who really wants to make film. Um, you know, not, not those people that just want to be directors and have the title and everything, but you know, any, any person that I've met that truly wants to make film and like truly wants to put their visions out there, you know, I've never met one who wasn't affected um, in a life-changing way by many films throughout their life. I can, I totally agree with you. Uh, I was recently watching scenes from the prestige uh, and I was watching the ending scene on YouTube mm -hmm. and uh, Hugh Jackman's, you know, dying on his knees talking to Christian Bale. And he's like, you don't get it. You know why we do this. It was the luck on their faces. You know, <laughs> you know, yeah. the world is hard, but for one moment you can make them believe, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, this is another Christopher Nolan manifesto about filmmaking. Uh, yeah, but um, also I would say, uh, this is why I use a, a word that a lot of people use derogatorily to sort of describe uh, what I want to do in terms of filmmaking. And I, I, I sort of uh, tongue in cheek call what I want to do is, uh, you know, being a propagandist almost, you know, in the same way, like I sure. want to change people's lives and I want them to be like, you know, almost zealous about it. Like, yeah. not, but like, you know, like after the movie ends, when the credits are there, I just want them to be like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to do this, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think I disagree with your, like, uh, your definition of propagandist you know sure um, and i like i said i'm using a very particular kind yeah. of i mean you know what maybe because we're liars right that's <laughs> none of this actually yeah. happened um i mean yeah that's what i'm saying but uh, you see it makes sense see, when you see think the, the difference is i think uh <laughs> a propagandist is almost a, like a peddler of lies you know where i think i think a filmmaker is someone who uses uses a lie to tell the truth well you know? this is you know this you know, connects with uh, everything i've been saying about romanticism yeah. And so on is, you know, if I give the the quick rundown, romanticism is essentially the philosophy that art is on equal plane with any other um, domain of knowledge in terms of being able to produce the truth. Mm -hmm. It's on par with philosophy, theology, and science. I would say it's that uh, all of these things uh, are creative outputs of the mind to some degree. And therefore, yeah. why can't art be? Uh, to the same degree why can't it also be treated as the truth and therefore i apply that to everything think about it as propagandist you think about a historian a documentarian a journalist well i would say at that at the end of the day um they're all sort of producing some secretion of truth right right um even if it's not even if we could tear into it and that's why i sort of say propagandist because it admits to the lie but it's also like it's what these lies have already formed us anyways so yeah um i, I would actually say that documentarians are probably closer to prop propagandists where they like claim truth to peddle the lie you know that's true um, it's less of an admission up front yeah <laughs> but um no anyways uh what was i gonna say I, I think it was about what you were talking about but i can't remember well you have anything left on the wind rises then uh yeah no I, actually we can just talk about the insight really quick where uh this is Go a film it. about how uh how essentially your dreams will cause pain and suffering in the world <laughs> And how it's worth it um, because like just being of, I mean, just like surviving at a base level um, is not what we were put here to do. We were put here to create beautiful yeah. dreams, right? And we we're here to breathe our dreams into reality and uh, push forward together. And, you know, that means that we're going to, we're going to suffer and we're going to hurt and we're going to die and, you know, 
making our whole world about stopping suffering uh, will be the death death of us. Yeah. Um, and like, I can't one, uh, this movie wrecked me when I saw it and it totally, um, it totally changed the way that I've been living for, especially for the past six months, uh, or I guess eight months since I saw it nine months, that's almost September now. Um, but yeah, no, uh, (sighs) films like this are just, uh, you know, one baffling like it's crazy that someone can make a film like this um yeah. but two uh you know uh inspire you to especially with the content of this film it inspires you to continue to push towards your dream and you know um is and i, th- I think that it's something that is again um just like whiplash and actually they have they have kind of similar insights um a little different um, yeah, but I would say that, uh, with the wind rises, it's another film that I think it's, is very important. Um, and the fact that Miyazaki, I think he came out of retirement to make this one. Um, because he said the film before this was his last film. And then he also said this was his last film and yeah. now he's and making, he's making another film. one, yeah. but he, <laughs> he, he, keep, well, he keeps doing that where like he, he says he's retired and then he sees something in the world and has some profound insight about it. And yeah, he just has to make it into a film. And I think that's, well, when you have that level of passion and frankly, obsession as well, like what are you going to do with yourself? You know what I mean? Right. You got to make the films. You, yeah. just gotta. you have to. Yeah. There's no other way. <laughs> um, and I'm so glad that he made this film and he didn't just say, well, I'm retired because honestly like this is what's this is what our world doesn't have now you know and this is why we feel hollow and why we you know are all all at each other's throats and yeah you know when we when we try so hard to make sure that no one gets hurt we destroy the very thing that makes us human Mm -hmm. you know and it sucks but it's true and this film proves it so (laughs) yeah uh go watch our episode it's it's long but this is also worth it so yeah (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) um uh, all right well i guess i'll do my number two uh yeah go for it so my number two is a movie that had a dramatic impact on me and actually inspired me to such a degree that i made a film partially in tribute to it okay um, the last film I directed personally, and that is the place beyond the pines. Mm. It's the Derek sign Francis, 2012 movie. Nice. And I made a movie called cold mornings. That was in many ways within this style and with very similar themes. Mm-hmm. Um, and this movie is essentially about the story of two sets of intergenerational families, the fathers and sons, the sons being determined by the father and the relationships and the sins of the father passing to the son and revenge and all of this, you know, like I've said many times, I love family stories. I love stories that deal with family. Um, but I'd say one thing I love about Derek sign Francis, once again, we're dealing with a guy, even though he has a plot, we have, we're focused in laser focused on the characters. And, um, we had these great little moments, you know, we have these moments between, uh, Ryan Gosling and what's his name? He's so fucking good. Ben Mendelsohn. Mm-hmm. This is my introduction to Ben Mendelsohn. He's so good. Nice as a character actor. 
Um, and yeah, it just follows the story of a guy who he's a biker. He does stunts for a carnival and a girl he hooked up with it last year uh, ends up having a baby, you know, and he realizes he's a father and he wants to stick around. Yeah. You know, he's, he's tatted up. He's definitely the bad boy, the outcast. And he wants to figure out how to provide for this child. Uh, Eva Mendez uh, is the mother. And so he starts robbing banks with the help of Ben Mendelsohn. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have the story of Bradley Cooper, who's a cop and his wife doesn't want him to be a cop. And he's a part of a corrupt precinct. Right. Yeah. You know, and Bradley Cooper ends up killing Ryan Gosling. And that's what I love is the the movie. You feel like the movie is about Ryan Gosling and somewhat about bradley cooper but then ryan gosling just fucking dies yeah. you know out of nowhere and then the mo- the story transfers it's this intergenerational transfer of the story onto the sons yeah and so the stories continued with both bradley cooper's uh son and ryan gosling's and evan mendez's son and and can I actually go for interject it. here uh we've actually talked about this before um i'm not sure if it's an actual uh, uh concept outside of what we talk about but um the whole 50 50 um, story structure mm. where you almost have two different films yes right and they interweave and there's there's a clear um essentially like intermission right yeah um not no, no intermission required but <laughs> um you know where, where there's a clear first half and second half and their own they're both their own story but um there is the uh like neither can exist with the without the other yeah right um yeah no but um i would say that it is the uh semicolon of story structures <laughs> oh that's that's very cool yeah yeah um i would say also the cinematography in this i love how fresh it feels it's sean bobbit by the way which yeah. is real he's fantastic he did 12 years of slave hunger widows shame you know beautiful fucking movies there was a movie that came out earlier this year the rhythm section which was not good but mm-hmm. it was beautiful to look at um and i just love it the music the original score in this is so good too there's that iconic um music that's playing when they do you know there's a lot of double shots in this where the father initially did it and then they do it again with the son in the later half of the movie yeah um i i really do love that and uh, Mike Patton, that's right, his, the the name of the the composer. Um, but yeah, what I would say is like this film definitely, I accepted it as truth. Frankly, uh, what this what it taught to me, I I sort of already believed some of this, and then this you know it made it clearer for me, uh, and just the the dramatic impact that the father has on the son, and the sort of transfer of the story. Mm-hmm. The story continues on, uh, and this is how you live on is through your your children. Yeah. Um, but it's a beautiful fucking movie and it's very heart touching. I love it. Yeah. It's awesome. So should we move on to our number ones? Yeah. Go for it, man. What's your number one? Wait, before I do this, I know what your number one is. We haven't talked about it yet. Um, okay. Well, uh, is your number one, a shared movie with me? I, we're both our number ones are shared movies. I can guarantee it. Are they? Yeah. So you just go ahead and go first. All right. So uh, my number one is Blade Runner 2049. I had that at spot number 13. Yeah. So this film, we've talked about it multiple times through the podcast before. We're we're definitely going to do an episode 
Um, it's going to be a hell of an episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if I kind of want to go into it like drive just because um, I feel like the ending of this film and the insight is so linked to everything in this film. And I would say okay. that it's, it's, a, it is a spider web, but it, you know, it, it's essentially um, building off of the original Blade Runner, um, mm-hmm. but in a thematic sense, right. Where um, I think that's the best way to do a sequel. Um, where it's not so much that you're, you know, just taking the superficial elements, which you are right. I think that Denny Villeneuve came in here and he did hit all of those, um, external notes, you know, that like people expect out of Blade Runner. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't that he was, um, um, doing anything against the prequel or anything like that. You know, it's clear that he loves the prequel or the original, and um, it's that he's building off of the philosophical point that the the original one made. Yeah. Um, and we talked about the original one a little bit about how, um, you know, it's, it's about what it means to be alive. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And that it doesn't it does. The ending is about how it doesn't actually matter if you're a robot or a human. And um, in this in this one, they actually don't answer that, which I was very glad about. Because that would have kind of been trampling over the first one, right? Sure. Because um, giving a definitive answer that to that would defeat the point, yeah. right? Um, however, um, uh, going beyond what it means to um, be alive, right, and moving more into what it means to, uh, I would say, have a soul, right. Or, or even mm-hmm. like, if you don't want to phrase it that way, what it means to be human. Sure. Right. Um, and this film disproves a lot. Right. And I, I think that's one of the best ways to do, to prove something is to disprove all the uh, counter arguments. Right. Yeah. And this film does a lot takes takes a lot of time disproving a lot about it, but it does have a definitive answer, and we will talk about it when we do an episode. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I I I won't talk about the meaning uh, either because uh, we're definitely going to do probably a good two hour episode, and then I could imagine, but yeah, and, stunningly, stunningly beautiful movie. Yeah. Um, Roger, Roger Deakins again. How many of the, our top twenty-five do you think Roger Deakins is shot? Because I'd wager a lot. Uh, I would say maybe like three to five. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. Anyways, uh, Quaid and I, uh, we actually, uh, we actually talked about this film a lot after we saw it, and we helped each other kind of figure out what the insight yeah, was. Yeah, I, uh, I saw this in I would say about three times in theaters. I think. Yeah, I think um, that was. Uh, oh no, maybe two. Four. I don't know. Maybe, maybe okay. three. No, it was four because I, I went. I can't remember who I went with first. I know I went with you. I went with my friend Jade. I think uh, I went with you on your second viewing. Yeah, and that was my first viewing. Um, uh, I went by myself, and then on my I first took my viewing. family. Yeah, yeah. So I, that's what I'm saying. I think it was your second or third viewing, but it was my first. Yeah, when we went together. Awesome. And then I took my family to go see it, and then I might have watched it again on my own, either in the theaters or at home. I'm not sure. Yeah, but. Um, uh, it's great. Another Ryan Gosling movie. How many movies has Ryan Gosling been? Oh yeah, I know. One, two, three, two, four, three. I got three so far. I think I have four. Yeah, four total. It's crazy. 
Yeah. Anyways, we should talk about that when we're done. Do you have anything more you want to add uh, about the this masterpiece? Uh, nope. Just that you know we're gonna break it down at some point. Oh yeah, big time. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned this earlier. My favorite film. I saw this on a wet September night, early September, and it changed me. I fucking loved it. I was fanatical about this film. To this day, it's in competition for my favorite film of all time with No Country for Old Men. Mm-hmm. It is Denny Villeneuve's 2013 movie, Prisoners. Nice. I love this film. And we're going to do an episode about this, too. So I guess I'll keep it quiet <laughs> as well. Yeah. But the primitive nature, once again, I'm going to bring that back up. The acting is so raw. And it's in such of these emotional yeah. extremes. Because yeah. um, the time pressure, the crunch, uh, and just what this father ends up having to do. And what you know this cop, Jake Gyllenhaal, has to end up doing as well. And what they go through in order to save these children. Mm-hmm. Um, Hugh Jackman's daughter and, and uh, the friend of the, the daughter, another young girl. It's just uh, amazing. The visuals, once again, Roger Deakins. It's amazing. There's some scenes in here I particularly think of that moment um, when they initially arrest Paul Dano. Paul Dano is probably his best performance in his career. Question mark? I don't know. I think so. It's up there with There Will Be Blood, (laughs) for sure. Oh, that too, yeah. Um, And, uh, but, you know, when they're they're pulling him out of his RV at a gas station, uh, the the beauty of their doing with the raining at night, you know, it felt Mm. perfect. The movie felt perfect because it's in fall and with the rain and snow and moisture. And I watched it in fall <laughs> with the rain and the snow and the moisture. I saw this in a huge theater. It must have been a 300 plus seater theater. And there was probably maybe 10 other people in the, in the screening. And I went with a friend or two friends and it was brilliant. I fucking love this movie. I can rewatch it to death. I've seen it probably about five or six times. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a masterpiece. Um, it's my favorite of the decade by far. It's what I think is the best. Yeah. yeah, I love the themes, but I, I I'll leave it I'll leave it be. You know, it has to do with things that I um, like a little bit more. Um, For sure. You know, I think there's a reason why you choose Arrival and Blade Runner over this, and I choose uh, Prisoners and Arrival over Blade Runner. You know. <laughs> um, uh, wait, wh- where was uh, Blade Runner for you? Uh, it was 13 arrival was seven nice. and prisoners was one. Uh, I didn't put enemy on my list, but it was close. Yeah. I, I just want to point out. That, Sicario um, was nine. I had Sicario above Blade Runner. Prisoners two. was 12 on mine. So I cool. just want to point that out. That right, are, that's like, weird. One right. In, one in 12 and 13. were just like swapped. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it's crazy. That's yeah, funny. It's, it's really insane how similar our list have been, especially at the top part here, like yeah. widely different in the bottom half. Yeah. So close to being the same. The top half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've um, actually, I've actually made this joke because, like, uh, I think you tend to gravitate towards art films, and I tend to gravitate yeah. towards like big blockbusters. But I, yeah, I made this joke the other day that I feel like, uh, I feel like Quaid's going to end up making blockbusters, and I'm going to end up going into art films. <laughs> oh man! Just, uh, could you imagine? Yeah, I know, right? I, I could see it though. You know, maybe it could maybe. happen. We'll see. You know. Um, who knows? But yeah, we could. But we could also just I wash up and do... be nobody, and never make yeah, a film again. It's true. <laughs> we just make a semi-successful film podcast for the yeah, rest yeah. of our life. <laughs> um, yeah. After the yeah, after these films, I'll, are done, I'll leave. We'll be uh, like, it's too hard. We can't do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, but I'll leave it there. Um, 
if you want to talk about what you want to talk about prisoners, but I don't want to get into it because this is definitely something we should make an episode yeah, about. Yeah, um, and just in true Villeneuve fashion, I don't think there's a single film of his that I don't consider to be just perfect. Yeah, um, it, like you need to watch some of the earlier stuff as well. I, I like Incendies and so on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, prison prisoners is great. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal was in two of his movies, right? Yeah, enemy, enemy. Yeah. Um, so prisoners and enemy. Uh, I believe. Oh, which I actually don't even know which one came first because I think they both came out in 2013. <laughs> I think prisoners came out first, but I think it was made second. Oh, I'm not sure okay. about that. Um, but yeah, prisoners is such a great film, and it. I don't know what the budget was, but it probably could have probably was pretty low. I think if I remember correctly, it was either around 30 some or 60 some. Yeah. So, but this is, I, I, I very much love this film too. And it actually, uh, out of all of Villeneuve's movies, it actually reminds me most of what I'm making right now. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of following multiple characters being kind of about, um, you know, have, having this, uh, kind of connection to greater forces you know and then yeah that spiritual element to it that's what i was talking about yeah yeah and and actually something that we both did was uh using the element of being um underground uh when 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 things happen that like you don't want the rest of the world to see you know Hmm. um yeah you know like like literally burying the parts of yourself that uh you consider to be depraved yeah. you know um and, and i actually really loved that because I, I started making uh i saw this i think 2018 uh you actually recommended it to me um yeah but well i told you it was my favorite of his you know i, I was gushing about it yeah so. i mean i, I was <laughs> going through villa news uh filmography but you were like do this one next <laughs> Um, but no, there was a, that was one thing that I, uh, uh, found kind of, uh, interesting is that we, we both use this idea of being under like beneath the ground, you know? Yeah. The hidden things. There's lots of hidden things in here. You know, the maze is the logo, right? The, the, the snakes, you know, and, uh, don't get excited. I don't think that my film is going to be nearly close to as good as this one. (laughs) You know, but uh, just just something like that, you know. That's good. Um, it's cool that we both had a uh, a film relating to our film. You know, yours is Prisoners, mine's Place Beyond the Pines. In terms of what we made recently, yeah, yeah. But um, no, it was uh, yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, well, we fucking did it, man. We fucking got through uh, all. Of this. Got through it. <laughs> Holy shit! Let's see. Uh, we're at a little over four hours combining both of these. Yeah. I told you. I told you um, it was going to be long. I know. Well, yeah. this is why I said we had to do it in two episodes. Yeah, anyways. yeah. Um, um, but well, let's do a couple of things real fast. I think you know. Let's X nay on the honorable mentions and let's talk about a few other things, sure. and then we'll end it off. Sure. First off, let's give us uh, some stats. Do you have your writing of uh, what years uh, the movies came out on your list? Uh, yeah, but I haven't added my bottom five. But I could do that really quick. Yeah, you go ahead and do that, and I'll just go over mine real fast, and I'll give it to everybody. Sure. Um, I, I, don't, I don't have the titles either. I'm just giving the stats. So I have one film from 2010, three from 2011, four from 2012, three from 2013, 
two from 2014, two from 2015, three from 2016, four from 2017, two from 18, and one from 19. So the big years there for me are 2012 and 2017, where I get eight um, films in total. And then I also have 2011, 2013, and 2016, each with three films totaling nine movies. So interesting that I sort of have a little bit of a dry spell at the beginning and the end of the year and in the very, sorry, the decade and in the very middle of the decade as well Yeah. in terms of what I'm choosing. Yeah, let's see. I have um, two from 2010, uh, two from 2011, one from 2012, three from 2013, four from 2014, one from 2015, three from 2016, one from 2017, um, uh, three from 2018, and four from 2019. So I'm kind of all over the place, honestly. What, uh, what's the most? What years are tied for the most? Uh, I think 2019, 2013, 2014. Um, wow. Yep. You're really spread out. Yeah. <laughs> nice. But uh, Interesting. Oh, I actually wanted to uh, say something about Arrival too. Is um, when I saw Arrival, um, I was actually writing a script that had the exact same insight as Arrival. Okay. And I saw it, and I came home, and I threw my script in the trash can because I was like, nice. "There's, there was just okay." So this script that I was writing was just like it was like three films long. Okay. You know, and it was like get sort of getting at the same insight, but in like way shittier of a way, you know, and it took yeah. me three films to get there. And I saw Arrival and I was like, holy fuck. Yeah. You watch this yeah, there's, uh, hundred uh, minute film and it just blows. Yeah. And I'm like, what, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in throwing away your own writing. Um, and that sounds horrible, but uh, <laughs> it's true because like it, when you when you see like if for example like if you think that you're like what they did like didn't touch on something that yours um yours is going to or you know your insights just similar but not the same or even that it needs to be like told again you know if you have that feeling but you know after watching arrival i was like there's literally no need for me to make my film right it's <laughs> this is if I want people to know this insight, I will just point them at arrival. Sure. You know? Um, and I don't know. I, I think, I think it was, uh, it was kind of a relief for me too, because, you know, I was having trouble kind of wrapping my head around, um, how to get it done. Villanue whispers in your ear, just let it go. Yeah. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> I was like, go. okay. <laughs> um, um, go ahead. Yeah. Um, we were also going to talk about who we think uh, yes. won the decade. Could I? Yes, I will introduce that because I know we we agree on the winner. Yeah, I think so it's obvious. Let's save that for last. Right. Yeah, <laughs> let's, but we'll save it for the last because they don't know. They they definitely don't know. Okay. Um, who would we say other? Who, you know, other than who this obviously is, um, are close. The I have a list here. You, yeah, um, you want to trade off one and one? I could start it off. Sure. Sure. Okay, I'll start off. David O. Russell. He made uh, Silver Linings Playbook and uh, American Hustle this decade. Yeah. Um, That's pretty fucking good. Silver Linings actually got booted off my list. Yeah, um, if I had a top 50, it'd be on here. Yeah. 
Uh, I think if I had a top 30, it, it might be in it. Um, All right. Well, who who do you think? Uh, Damien Chazelle. Honestly. Uh, yeah, I knew yeah. you were going to obviously. <laughs> yeah. I think he's possibly the runner up, frankly. Yeah. Um, I would say Nolan. Yeah. Nolan. Yeah. You know, I would say the 2000s were Nolan's for sure. I think that's almost a certainty. Right. But uh, yeah, Nolan's close. Great decade as well. Yeah. Who else? Do you have anybody else? Um, Let me think. Uh, I can keep going. You want yeah, me to? Yeah, sure. You go ahead. Uh, Sign France, you know, he had Blue Valentine, The Place Beyond the Pines, and The Lighthouse mm, this year. Nice. Fantastic films. Oh, Sam Mendes. Fantastic. That was... Yes, Sam Mendes. Totally right. Yeah. I had that on my list here. But um, I think as far as Matthew Vaughn. Um, yeah. Yeah. Matthew Vaughn had a great decade. Um, yeah. And then uh, I, I would say also uh, Bong Joon Ho. Oh, yeah. Bong Joon Ho. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, David McKenzie, possibly. Yeah. Possibly, probably lower on the list. Also, Lynn Ramsey. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin. Um, what's the one with Joaquin Phoenix that came out recently? Uh, spectacular films. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but why don't you, uh, do you have anybody else? Well, I, I was going to say it's probably definitely between Nolan and uh, Damien Chazelle because, you know, Nolan obviously yeah. has more films up there, but Damien Chazelle is also three for three. You yeah. Know? His three are amazing. Yeah. I mean, what does Nolan have this decade? He has Interstellar, Inception, Dark Knight Rises, and Dunkirk. Jesus Christ. Those are Pretty awesome great. <laughs> yeah. But I would say Damien Chazelle, I think they probably connect a little bit more uh, with us yeah. in particular. Um, you know, I, I, but yeah. I feel like we're just discounting I would also Dave throw Fincher. out. Um, oh, yes. Venture is on there, too. Venture is on there as well. But I mean, he's just so like, I mean, I, I guess like I put Dave Fincher and Nolan in the same category of they've just been so consistently good this whole time that it's not really that they had yeah. a good decade. It's just been like. Well, I think if we did the 90s, I might give it to Fincher because I think that's both seven and Fight Club. OK, yeah. Um, also, I had a name on here, Jeremy Solner. He did uh, um, Green Room and Blue Ruin this decade. Cool. So he's on lower on the list, but that was some. Pretty good I do have to, to start off see with. both of those still, but um, who's the guy that did uh, Macbeth? You know? Oh um, yeah. Um, didn't he also do like, the Assassin's Creed movie? Yeah. So that would be a strike against him. <laughs> I actually liked that. I <laughs> actually too. liked that. Me too. I think. Like. I think the problem with that um, movie is that it turned into an Assassin's Creed video game ad at the end. Yeah, um, the ending was really shaky. Yeah. Um, but he did uh, Macbeth and Assassin's Creed. Um, but I would I would consider him too. Macbeth was stunning visually. Yeah. But how about you go ahead and crown the obvious winner <laughs> of the decade? The obvious winner is M Night Shop. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what a um, twist! Even though hey, even though actually Split was um, actually in my Pretty top good. 25. Oh, okay. yeah. I, I think that was okay. An amazing movie, and he really went back to his roots and made something awesome. Um, yeah, he's pulled it back out recently. I enjoyed Glass as well. Yeah, um, but I, I do believe that Split is his best film, um, Six Sense included. Um, anyways, uh, I really like The Village. I have a, a soft spot for The Village. I haven't seen that one yet. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, there you go. There's but um, recommendation. yeah, the true, uh, you know, undisputed between <laughs> the two of us, uh, winner of the decade is Denis Villeneuve. Um, Obviously. Obviously, let's go over. Yeah, it's let's go over prisoners, enemy. Uh, what was after that? Arrival, 
Blade Runner 2049. Uh, Sicario. Yeah. yeah, Prisoners. Fucking That's hell. ridiculous. And he's going to be coming out with uh, Dune here next year, I think. Yeah. Is it uh, Dune 20, 2021? Is it 21 or 22 that it's coming out? I'm pretty sure it's 21. It might have been pushed to 22 because of COVID. There is no release dates for anything anymore. Frankly. Right. We'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think I think Dune is a perfect fit for him. You know, we're, we're just we're most likely in for another masterpiece. And I think one of the things that uh, one one of the most underappreciated parts of Denny Villeneuve is that he uh, he has such a good relationship with his producers. Um. Yeah, they let him do whatever really like the fuck he wants, that. you know. Well, he's got the trust. It's like Nolan has that too. Yeah, like Nolan gets to do whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah, and you know. Yeah, no, I, and I talk about this a lot, but I think I think being able to communicate with your producers is uh, one of the most important abilities to, that you have as a director. Yeah. You know, sorry, autistic people. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they're the ones. They're the they are the power behind your art right they they are literally what powers the machine and you have to you have to understand that you know and if you wanted to be in an art form where you know you have full creative control and no one gets to question you go write a book you know yeah but like if you're going to make films you know you're going to be working with hundreds if not thousands of people yeah you know and you can't just hope that all these people are going to work for you for free. You know, um, you're going to have producers. You're going to have people that run things besides you. And like as a director, your job is to communicate your vision. And that includes to the producers, not just your department heads. You know, and I yeah. think every great director, whether it's Villeneuve, uh, Nolan, Fincher, um, they all are able to talk to their producers, you know? Yeah. And while they may have had, um, you know, upsetting experiences here and there uh, with producers, like they all work through it. They all still make incredible movies, you know? Um, yeah, no, it, it's, just, it's just an invaluable skill to have. And um, I've never heard Denny Villeneuve say anything bad about his producers. No, I think he's probably a delight to work with. Frankly, I think uh, I think you know he's proven himself. You know, so that 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 you also get that after uh, proving yourself. Yeah. Um, but let's. uh, I want to go over two more things and then we can uh, close it out. But I'd like to do the same thing that we did with the director for both uh, actor and actress. So I have a Mm. list here, and then you can go ahead and chime in if you have any. Okay. Well, Uh, just from kind of like a general overview, I would say that Ryan Gosling probably. Won the decade for me. Ryan Gosling. Okay. Yeah. Well, here's what I have. Uh, and then I'll tell you who I think won the decade in terms of men. Sure. I have uh, Matthew McConaughey, Jake Gyllenhaal, mm. Joaquin Phoenix, Michael Fassbender, Leo DiCaprio, Jeremy Renner, and Christian Bale. But yet, I do have exactly who you said and completely, totally agree. Ryan Gosling won the decade as the actor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Place Beyond the Pines, Drive, Blade Runner 2049. Um, first man what a first man yeah god damn La La Land. <laughs> yeah he's yeah. just he's co- consistently making you know awesome choices in terms of movies and delivering on uh, the performances in those films as well he's got fantastic taste i think he 
truly able is able to find great directors you know mm-hmm. and not only that great directors want to work with him but he's also able to tell if the movie's going to be good or not just from the script and a meeting with the director you know like you hear that magical meeting that him and Refn had immediately for drive you know yeah initially and initially it seemed like it wasn't going to work out but you know Refn started crying in his car as ryan gosling was driving him back to his house mm-hmm. well pop music was playing and Refn looked over at him and he's like this is what the movie's about man it's a guy that drives around at night listening to pop music in his car <laughs> and uh, Ryan gosling's like okay yeah let's do this yeah um, but he also was willing to have the meeting with Revan because he saw the Hell Rising, which is a really crazy film yeah. that Revan made. Yeah. And, you know, to recognize the talent behind that, I think that takes an interesting person. So that's really cool. Cool. Um, but yeah, let's do actress. Do you have a name off the top of your head that you want to throw out for best actress? You know, um, here, let me, let me just kind of look over all this really quick. Okay. Well, off the to- why don't I? Off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say. I'm tied between Emily Blunt and Amy Adams. Well, that's very interesting that you say that, Nick. We're so similar. Aren't we so similar? So here's who, here's who I have on my list. Um, one of my personal favorite actresses. Marianne Cotillard. And Marianne yeah. Cotillard. I have Jennifer Lawrence. I have Jessica Chastain. Mm-hmm. And I have Roseman Pike. But then my top two choices are <laughs> Emily Blunt and Amy Adams. Look at that. And I yeah. would give it to Emily Blunt, ultimately. Uh, sure. Between A Quiet Place and Sicario, I think she knocked it out of the park. So. Yeah, but I mean, Arrival, you know, it's so... It's... Yeah, and <laughs> she's, all, you know, Amy Adams is in Arrival. She's also in American Hustle, right. and she was in uh, Nocturnal Animals. I don't know if you've seen that. I haven't. That's a fantastic film with Jake Gyllenhaal as well. Uh, you should definitely watch that. So Doesn't she have yeah, a new she's film great coming too. out too? Um, I don't know. Probably. <laughs> it's Amy Adams. Yeah. I can't remember. I thought it was supposed to come out recently, but I think I'm wrong. So have you decided do you want Emily Blunt or Amy Adams? Which one do you think? Fuck, I don't know. Uh, let me Make a goddamn choice. Hold on, hold on. Let me think about it. Okay, so I'll think out loud so it's not boring. Um, okay, so obviously Sicario is awesome. Amy Blunt, Emily Blunt's awesome. Sicario, she was in Edge of Tomorrow. She's also in uh, Quiet Place. Quiet Place. Um, she delivers awesome performances in all of them. But I think between um, Arrival and American Hustle, yeah, I don't know. I think Amy Adams just like blows it out of the blows, just does blows, it for you. Not Emily Blunt out of the water, but just like blows her performance out of the water <laughs> in Arrival. You know where like I feel you. I, I think so much. The, the The thing is with Arrival, so much of that film hinges on her performance you know and the fact that she pulled it off so well and you know she really sold that movie um and i I would say that most of that film relied on her um not just because she's the main character she's a great actress because because there there's a very distinct emotional through line that has to be portrayed through the acting yeah she's got tremendous range tremendous yeah. and um the fact that she pulled it off is just you know nuts and like it's especially with something so like high concept yeah you know um not to rag on emily blunt at all because she's awesome too but um i'm gonna give it to gonna... adams question mark i'm well, gonna put a question mark go. there you go but well there we go ladies and gentlemen <laughs> you've heard our top 25 each 
And now you've heard, we both agree on Denny Villeneuve for Director of the Year. We both agree on Ryan Gosling for Actor of the Year. When it comes to actress, I go with Emily Blunt. He goes with Amy Adams. This has been Deep Focus. All right, we're signing off, Nick. You have a good night, all right? Yep, it's 5 a.m. See you, everyone. We're done. (laughs) All right. All right. Bye. Have a good day. Oh, uh, actually, let's not end it there. I apologize to everyone. Uh, Either between these last episodes, we will have done Tenet or Tenet will come next. Oh, yeah. The next film we're going to do a deep dive on is Seven. So I will make sure it's ordered in your podcast podcast feed that these are right next to each other however this may still be uploaded after tenant just so everyone knows and doesn't freak out um because they will freak out no but um yeah (laughs) um but i did also want to mention uh going forward um and i haven't talked quite about this yet so i'm just announcing it without um consent from quaid oh no um that we just like we reserve the right to change anything about the uh, film list that we're making, we also reserve the right to um, not make an episode about any film. Actually, we did talk about that a little bit. But, yeah. um, you know, if we say we make want to make an episode on a movie and, you know, it's coming out in theaters and we just don't like it or something, we're not going to do an episode on it. Um, we'll yeah. just kind of hail Mary it and do something else. But. Yeah, I used to make the I've made the statement a few times that, you know, the only way we'd make a movie. Uh, sorry, a podcast about a movie we didn't like is if we fucked up the scheduling and didn't have enough time. Well, we're not doing that. <laughs> Nick has uh, made that clear to me, and I actually agree with him. Uh, at worst case scenario, we'll just do a, a Band-Aid episode where we talk about random shit. Um, we're never going to make an episode about a movie we don't like. We just don't want to be. We don't want to be critics yep. at the end of the day. Yep. So, Cool. All right. Well, I think that's everything then. Everyone have a good night. Hopefully, you actually enjoyed these five-hour <laughs> <laughs> dual episode. And I have to be at work in four hours. But no. I'm good. I'm quitting soon. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but anyways, yeah. All right. Have a good night, guys. See ya.